This is the Massive Cinema, my name is Joachim. And my name is Tom. And today we will be talking about both the fourth quarter announcements and also the 2014 as in Massive Cinema year. And with us today we have Managing Editor of Film Divider, Craig Skinner. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's nice to be here. Great. Um, so let's just get into the uh, fourth quarter announcements. The first one we have Stanley Donan's 1967 Two for the Road, uh, spine number 107 this time. And it's a dual format release, which will be released on the 19th of January. And this stars Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney as an architect and a, and a wife who examine their 12-year relationship while they're on a road trip to southern France. And this is actually the release that looks the most exciting to me, I think, out of this quarter's releases. It's uh, considered somewhat experimental uh, in that it's told very non-linearly, uh, with scenes from latter stages of the relationship juxtaposed with uh, scenes from its beginning. Uh, and often... I read that it often leaves the viewer to kind of interpret what has intervened, which is sometimes revealed in later scenes. So uh, this I never heard of this one before, and it definitely looks interesting. I have actually seen it, and oh. I saw it many, many years ago. And um, yeah, it's an absolutely wonderful film, um, made by Stanley Donnan, of course. Yeah, and kind of, you, know, you don't really associate the person who's kind of singing in the rain and kind of shredding things like that to make this film. But um, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful film. And my preview copy of it actually arrived yesterday from Master of Cinema. So I'm, I'm going to kind of check it. I'm probably going to try and, try and watch it um, sometime next week. But uh, yeah, I, I was really taken with it. And uh, to my knowledge, I, I, had to, I don't think you could get hold of it on DVD for a long time. I think it was one of those ones that kind of got kind of passed by. And I hadn't, I certainly, it kind of dropped out of my consciousness and I didn't see it. And I, when I know sort of Master Cinema were going to put it out, I was really pleased. Like, it's only just jogged my memory as to how good it was. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to kind of tuck into that one. Craig, have yeah. you seen this one? No, I haven't. I uh, I don't think it has been available on DVD. And I'm, I don't even remember it being on VHS, at least in the UK. Uh, because I was a big, big Audrey Hepburn fan when I was younger, and I I never watched it, um, and I'm sure I would have tracked it down somehow. Um, <laughs> and I really like Stanley Donen as well, so yeah, I'm really excited to see it. It's sitting on my shelf right now within eyeline, and I uh, I can't wait. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm very fascinated by the structure as well, and I've heard that it very much adds up, so that if if you kind of take all the scenes and put them in a linear order, they do make perfect sense, which uh, hmm. is something. Uh, that that structure would drive me a bit nuts if it didn't work. <laughs> uh, but I've got faith in uh, Tonan as well. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that, definitely. Great. What what kind of uh, um, supplements are on this? Because I didn't, couldn't find any information on that. Uh, it's got a commentary of Stanley Donan on it, an interview with um, Frederick Raphael. And okay. uh, it's a 36-page booklet as well as come with it. So Nice. Okay, so also on the 19th of January, we get a re-release. This is the first re-release we've had with the Blu-rays. And this is Fritz Lang's Metropolis by number 16. And it will come out in a new steelbook packaging. And it will also include a second Blu-ray with uh, additional features, including the Giorgio Moroder version and a 45-minute documentary exploring the film's rediscovery alongside the previous Blu-ray that is available. So, um, will you guys be picking this one up? Yes. <laughs> I really, I really want to watch that documentary, but outside of that, I've got the original release of Metropolis and I've got the 
version, the Giorgio Moroder version, although I have no idea why, because I don't think I'm ever <laughs> going to watch it. But um, I'll watch it again, that is. I've seen it and I, I can't stand it. But the uh, the documentary sounds very appealing. So, uh... Yeah, I have kind of an obsession with Metropolis artwork. Um, I have kind of paintings and whatnot of it all over my house. And yeah, I would just be picking it up purely for aesthetic reasons on the steelbook. I don't have the Moroder version and I would like to confess now, I do actually quite like it in a really bad way. <laughs> so um, I'm mildly, yeah, I'm mildly disgusted at myself for saying that. But and I want the documentary, yeah, and it's, it's limited edition, four thousand. So as it always comes to these types of things, I'll justify it to myself by saying it's an investment for the future, even though I will have never, never had any intention of selling it. It probably won't be worth the thousands that I'm going to convince myself it will be. But I will be, <laughs> picking, I will be picking it up. That that cover looks amazing. Yeah, and I've got a poster of that as well on my wall. That that exact cover, so I'm pretty mm. happy with that. So yeah, I will be picking it up. Nice. I'm going to leap really far ahead just for a second, if that's okay. And do you, yeah. did you guys both watch uh, Spione? I'm not entirely sure how you pronounce yeah. that, but that's I did. Uh, yeah, because yeah, that's got uh, Metropolis posters in the background, doesn't it? I, I didn't notice. That. I've not noticed. Yeah, the, oh, unless I'm muddling up two films, but I'm pretty sure when they're running about the streets, there's uh, you see posters for metropolis in the background on the walls it's kind of a weird bit of uh, uh kind of product placement <laughs> i'll go back and watch it i didn't notice that actually i feel yeah. like vaguely if, if it is if you if you haven't got your eyes i feel kind of a bit of a fraud really because having just said that i collect metropolis posters no we'll go back into that um so on the 26th of january we will be getting the uh, big box set of showa which will be it will be spine number 100 in, until 104. And this will coincide with the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And it will also include Claude Landsman's um, The Last of the Unjust, which was announced uh, previously this year. And also uh, three other films, A Visitor from the Living, uh, So Bibor, October 14th, 1943, 4pm, the cast and the cask report as well as a 300 page book so what are you uh tom how are you looking forward to this one yeah this is good i think it's kind of the release i'm looking forward to most and it's going to tie into something i'm going to say about master cinema a little bit later um i held off buying the criterion version of this because i was kind of suspecting that we were going to get it updated on blu-ray and i'm, I'm so glad i am waiting because get these extra films as well i think it's something of a godsend but it, it seems kind of strange and vaguely kind of uh, sort of odd in a way to say but i mean i have kind of a fascination with kind of that period and kind of the holocaust general the war in general really and the whole kind of the history of it and i love kind of films about it i know it's an incredibly depressing subject but it does interest me not in some kind of sick way but it just fascinates me that kind of part of the human psyche and it's it's such an incredible film shower that i think it just it just cries out to be seen and i it's odd because i don't kind of sit there and say i can genuinely enjoy watching shower but it's something which I kind of feel compelled to do on a quite fairly regular basis. So to have all these films come out, I, I, you know, I've seen um, some of the screen grabs of the Criterion Blu-ray that came out, and it does look amazing. I imagine it'd be from the same print. So for for, you know, for it to look that good uh, again, I, I think it's going to be something of a, a joy really to kind of own and kind of go into and just yeah explore those other films. I've not seen any of them, and I'm really kind of interested to see where where they go. Craig, have you seen any of the four films? I've seen Shoa, and I've also seen The Last of the Unjust. Um, hmm. I, I saw Shoa a very long time ago, and, my, and uh, 
it, it kind of stayed with me, uh, I'd say emotionally, but perhaps not the, the actual details of the film uh, didn't stay with me that well. So I'm very much looking forward to watching that again, uh, despite obviously being a very uh, grueling and upsetting experience watching that film. Um, hmm. Lastly, Unjust is phenomenal as well. Uh, I saw it about just under two years. It was kind of May 2013 I saw it. <clears throat> Sorry. And it's, uh, yeah, it's an exceptional film and uh, it tells you, it told me a lot of things that I didn't know about that period. Um, very, very shocking details of, uh, of the behaviour at that time that even though you know so much about what happened then, I think uh, Lance was so good at uncovering things that are still startling when you find them out. So, um yeah, that's a that's a really good film as well. So I'm I'm really looking forward to this release and uh, and checking out the other the other shorts and everything else on the on the release that I haven't seen. Hmm. Um, I have plans on uh, watching show for the first time actually this uh, Christmas <laughs> Christmas watching <laughs> uh, a cheery, cheery. A festive one. Yeah, indeed. Um, but um, I I think I've seen a couple of the episodes, um, but not really in. Um, in chronological order, uh, just uh, kind of happenstance, caught it on, uh, caught it on telly, or watched it in like social studies class or something. Um, but I'm looking forward to like watching it from start to finish and uh, digging into the Criterion box that um, I've uh, purchased a long time ago and haven't opened. Um, but this uh, this release that we're getting from Masters of Cinema that will be um, a Blu-ray release, the Showa and four films after Showa. Uh, but we will also be getting the DVD with uh, only the four films after Showa. So those will be spine numbers 136 to 139. Uh, and the booklet including here will be uh, 120 pages, which will be only focused around the four films and not on Showa. So that will be the differences between the two. Later in the year, we will also receive Ilya Kazan's Wild River, uh, a Blu-ray release. And this stars Montgomery Clift, uh, as well as Lee Remick and Joe Van Fleet. And in 2002, it was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry. And it's actually the film debut of Bruce Dern. And in it, uh, Clift plays a government official that has to persuade locals to move their, move from their property so that a dam can be built. So it has this kind of traditional Kazan themes of tradition against progress and individualism against the greater good. And it's been really lauded for its gorgeous and expressive uh, imagery, which is uh, not something I usually think about when I think about Kazan's filmography. So uh, have any, any of you two uh, ever heard about this or seen this? I heard about it. I've not seen it, and I mean, I'm a big fan of Eddie Kazan's films anyway. So I, I do love. So yeah, I can't. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. And um, like you say, if it's just kind of represent kind of a uh, kind of something a stylistic um, change for him, then yeah, yeah, I'll be all for it. But no, I've not actually seen it, so I can't really comment further. Hmm. Yeah, I'm almost exactly the same. Uh, heard of it, but heard of it, but not seen it. And also, yeah, uh, I definitely like Kazan, and uh, looking forward to it. One of my wish list films for some point for Master Cinema is America, America. So um, more Kazan's good because hopefully we'll be on our way to that at some point as well. Also announced was uh, a favourite director of mine, Cindy Lumet, and his uh, The Offence, a Blu-ray release as well, uh, where Sean Connery, he plays a police detective who kills a suspected child molester while interrogating him 
And after Connery, he agreed to return to the James Bond series with uh, Diamonds Are Forever. He got a deal with the United Artists that they would pledge uh, two projects, uh, pledge to back two projects of Connery's choosing. And one of these was The Offense. And it was released in 1973. Not a very huge commercial success. And Universal Artists actually pulled out of their deal with Connery. Um, as a result. So uh, it's an early limit, but from uh, what I've read, he's showing signs here of the really signs of intensifying and really concentrating his film. And Connery's character kind of resembles the protagonists of uh, another film that we will be talking about later, Serpico, as well as Prince of the City and Q&A, for example, with this kind of pressure cooker mind and being plagued by images of the past. Yeah, I've seen it as well many years ago, and I really, really did enjoy it. Out, out of interest, what was the other film that he was looking to get funded? It wasn't Zardos, was it? No, oh, um, I can't remember off the top of my head which one it was. <laughs> it's hard oh. not to laugh when someone says Zardos, even even though I quite enjoy Zardos. But it just that the thinking about that film and the image of Sean Connery and what he wears just instantly makes me laugh. So <laughs> I think it actually, I think it was actually a Shakespeare film. Ah. Uh, perhaps it was uh, Macbeth, but I'm not sure. Nah, that's okay. No, I was just wondering who was responsible for, for funding Zardos. So I'm going <laughs> to shake their hand. What a brilliant <laughs> uh, also getting um, later in the year, we'll be getting Raymond Bernard's uh, Wooden Crosses, a dual format release. And we will be talking about Les Miserables later. But this, uh, both Les Miserables and Wooden Crosses, they have received a um, DVD release with the Eclipse series of Criterion Collection. Um, but we are lucky enough to get those in Blu-ray, actually. And this one I really enjoyed. Uh, it's kind of a French version of the All Quiet on the Western Front. And there's a young patriotic student that joins the French army in the uh, First World War to defend his country. But what he and his comrades are experiencing is just uh, terrifying in this kind of endless trench war where more of these wooden crosses have to be erected. Yeah, I mean, I've got the Eclipse series it's on and I yeah, I really enjoyed it. So to get a Blu-ray upgrade is great and I'm looking forward to that one again. I I was quite touched by that film actually, I seem to remember. Mm. It was a... The only thing about these kind of Blu-ray releases of these films, does it mean we're going to have to be buying the Eclipse series again on Blu-ray? That's the only thing I'm beginning to worry <laughs> about. But we'll, we'll cross that when it comes to it. Yeah. Craig, have you seen this uh, Wooden Crosses? I've not, no. It's a real blind spot uh, because uh, I feel like I should have seen it. But um, I've heard great things about it. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Also, we will be getting Anthony Mann's Man of the West dual format and uh, more Westerns. That is also always uh, great news for me. Uh, this is a 1958 film uh, with Gary Cooper, Julie London and Lee Cobb. And it's one of the Westerns that was really ignored by the American critics and really hailed by people like Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, and Gary Cooper, he plays Link Jones, a gunfighter who's forced to betray his kind of newfound pacifism by annihilating a gang that has uh, that used to be his comrades. So um, it was man's final Western, from what I remember. And uh, also Kino Loba, they released this in November this year. And it has been on several uh, critics' lists of the um, top releases of the year. So I'm really looking forward to this one. Yeah, I'm a big Anthony Man fan, actually. I really do enjoy his films. Um, and um, yeah, 
we did, I did kind of a thing on him at university. Unfortunately, this is one I didn't get around to seeing. So, and like mm. I say, I love Westerns. So to get that, yeah, I yeah, can't wait for that. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty confident I saw it as a kid, but I have no no real memory of it. I remember the vague premise, but um, it's an Anthony Mann Western, so it's something to look forward to, definitely. I'm really hoping we will get the the Golden Spur as well. That's probably my favourite Mann mm. Western, and that probably that maybe that will come later in the year. Would you know one film I really like? It, it needs a decent Blu-ray release, um, and it's it's not a Western by Anthony Mann, but the fall, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, sorry, the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, I don't know if you've used in that, but it's one of these brilliant. It was seventy millimeter film, um, and it, it's it's just its entire home cinema release history. It's just been appalling. It had a pan and it had a one eight five cropped DVD, and then the Blu-ray that they've made is from a thirty five millimeter blow up. They've locked the overture off, and it's just so annoying because it's such a great film. It's a really enjoyable film actually, and I'd love to see that one kind of find its way, get kind of get the restoration it deserves, and kind of you know perhaps get released through something like Criterion Masters Cinema, but yeah, it's kind of like one of those wish list things. Maybe they'll even get hold of some of his film noirs, because Anthony Mann, that's, I feel like that's where he started with film noirs, and uh, T-Men, for example, and Raw Deal, those are films I would really enjoy watching in Blu-ray, so... The final film that was announced uh, is Federico Fellini's Satyricon, uh, a Blu-ray release. And this was also uh, announced by Criterion earlier, I think, earlier this fall. Am I correct? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, they, I they, stuff, yeah. they teased it with a um, one of their wacky drawings, I think, like August, September time, maybe? It seems a bit <laughs> earlier, but... But yeah, I'm not. I'm not even a hundred percent. Was it definitely released? Uh, was it definitely? I think it was uh, announced. announced. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Seem to remember. I think the last time they released their announcements, um, that was among them. So, but uh, anyhow, it's a 1969 Italian really surrealist drama uh, with a series of kind of episodes, uh, body and satirical episodes in first century Rome, and I remember distinctly that this was the first Fellini film I saw. Um, I was about 15, uh, and I knew that Fellini, he was like a big man in cinematic history, and I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> this was like everything that I hate about Fellini with the 1970s, let it all hang out kind of feeling. Um, so I'm, I'm dreading going back to this one. <laughs> um, well, we'll discuss Fellini in a bit, but I, my, my sort of opinion on him has, has changed a little bit over the course of this year, so... I'm actually looking forward to this one now. So. Craig, what are your thoughts on Fellini, um, especially 70s films? Yeah, I mean, I, I it's kind of obvious, but I like uh, Eight and a Half a great deal. But um, Fellini, I kind of like and enjoy some of his films, but very few of them have really clicked with me. And I, I had almost the exact same experience with you. I saw Stu Common on. I was trying to, as you were talking, I was trying to remember when I saw it. And I've got to have been about 15 as well. And hmm. yeah, I, I didn't like it. It just seemed uh, kind of, I got the same feeling you got, but at the same time, I, I'm pretty confident that was more to do with my age. And uh, yeah. I'm very intrigued to see it now and uh, kind of reassess it for myself. Hmm. I'm going through um, Fellini's uh, filmography somewhat chronologically uh, by the releases I have. And I've gotten up to the Dolce Vita, um, but I've, I've really enjoyed kind of going back to the roots and seeing where he started from, because I, I've realised that 
um, my dread of Fellini, that it's, it feels like at least it's more related to his later stuff, like the, um, what was the film we hated last year? The, the women, the city of women, <laughs> uh, for example. Um, but, uh, a film like, uh, Knights of Cabiria, that was one of my favorite films I've ever seen, I think. So that was simply extraordinary to watch. So, um, I'm really looking forward to um, delving more into Fellini and seeing how he develops from uh, 60s on, yeah. Hmm. Also, um, we will be getting to Eureka Classics releases. Um, two films I've never heard about. Bill Gunn's Ganja and Hess, a dual-format release, and also Robert Mulligan's The Other, uh, a dual-format release. Have either of you two heard of these ones? No, but Ganja and Hess arrived as a preview on Saturday as well. So hmm. I was, um, yeah, I'm going to check that one. It looked kind of crazy. So just from the artwork alone, I've never heard of it. I don't know anything about it. So I'm quite looking forward to, to tucking into that one. Hmm. Yeah, I, I saw Ganja and Hess uh, as a teenager, but I watched it uh, pretty young i think and i think i watched it with a pretty non-serious head on at the time so uh i'm looking forward to uh watching that one with a kind of bit more consideration than i did the first time i think i was probably drawn in by a a, a lurid vhs cover or something that <laughs> kind of sucked me into it something stupid you know that sort of stupid reason you watch films when you're a kid uh so uh yeah i'm looking forward to uh watching that definitely um, what about the the other Rob Mulligan film from 1972? I've never I'm, heard of it. No, I'm not familiar with that at all. Um, from what I can see, it's kind of a horror mystery drama film. Um, but I've never heard of any of the cast. And uh, it seems to be based on a novel um, and deals with two uh, or with twins where one turns out to be good while the other becomes uh, rather evil. So um, I don't know... Um, Probably will be catching this one on a late night, uh, late weekend night. Sounds like a um, a proper thriller. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's, it's, been, it's one of those, isn't it? I think sometimes with these kind of niche things, I, 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 sort of, I feel a bit ignorant sometimes when people talk about it. I just don't know anything about them and I can readily attest to not even hearing about, I don't know the first thing about them. So which I guess it's kind of the point of these Eureka classics because some of the ones that have come out so far, I've not heard of but really, really enjoyed. So, I mean, they seem to have kind of, hit home runs with me so far so i'm definitely going to look forward to seeing it hmm. so uh, moving on to our main part of the show and uh, the 2014 wrap-up um in 2013 we've got 27 releases so we got one dvd uh four blu-ray onlys um 18 both blu-rays and dvds or blu-ray upgrades and we got four dual format releases and in 2014, we got 26 releases, uh, one DVD set, eight Blu-rays, and 17 dual-format releases, including four upgrades. So uh, it's really changed how they decided to move forward with the releases. Dual-format seems to be the way that they are going. And we we also seen um, like there will there are probably no DVD only. Uh, releases coming forward what what are your kind of thoughts on how they have decided to change their format uh, yeah forward? i mean kind of things like dvd i mean that's because i can't remember the last time i bought a dvd no <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a dead um format to me really i don't buy them anymore obviously i've still got quite a lot which i watch and in fact i was saying to david blakesy actually before we recorded um the episode we did together where i, I was watching um a dvd i think it of, of hiroshima more and more and i was 
I, I thought, you know what? DVD is still pretty good. You know, it's, it's still it's still a good format, but I just don't buy them anymore. And I kind of, I can see why they kind of do these dual format ones. I, I guess it's to kind of, I, I suppose to kind of tempt people um, who might not have upgraded already. But I kind of, the way I see it, if you're buying these kind of films, I, I pretty much can guarantee you've got a Blu-ray. And it, yeah, it's, I guess it's nice to have the DVD. I can't remember a time where any dual format releases where I've actually watched the DVD as well for any reason in particular. But, um, you know, I, I think it's, I, I guess it's kind of catering, hit, you know, kind of trying to cover all bases and what have you. And, um, yeah, bring, I mean, I think, I think the, the quality of the Blu-ray releases that we've had from Mars Cinema this year, which we'll get into in a bit, I think, I think the actual quality of the ones they're putting out are, are really quite incredible, actually. I think some of the, the, the kind of the pitch quality and the sound and all that kind of thing. But, Perhaps I'd like to see more of the back catalogue getting upgraded. Mm-hmm. That's perhaps the one thing I don't know. What, yeah, I guess it's kind of just managing, having the time to kind of put them all out. But I would like to kind of get to the point where yeah, we can get them all on Blu-ray. And I'd, yeah, I'd be more than happy to kind of go back and buy them. Yeah, right. I I wrote a piece in uh, June uh, this year about when Criterion decided to ditch their dual formats. And I wrote a piece about how I think they should ditch schedule formats and they should also ditch dvd um <laughs> unless the film really can't be released on blu-ray um uh there were quite a few spirited debates as you can imagine uh, that came out of that piece <laughs> but um if there's a blu-ray i don't see the need for a dvd and uh it's an argument i've had quite a few times uh you didn't get a vhs copy with every copy of dvd that you bought uh just in case you were somehow still using your vhs player when you bought the dvd i don't i don't i really don't understand it personally I, I the dual format doesn't really make sense to me if you're spending the amount that people must be spending on master cinema and and as well criterion releases if you're spending that much then i don't know why you don't just buy the blu-ray it, it seems baffling to me when you can pick up a blu-ray player so cheap as well now i can't i don't think it's cost prohibitive in the way that it perhaps once was how do you do you feel about including like a digital copy of the film. Uh, I feel like that is probably the next step in the, the format evolution, so to speak. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some logic there. But at the same time, I I think the digital copy has to be... I kind of have kind of strict requirements when I buy digital copies. That I, I don't like the way a lot of companies are locking you into certain services and... I'm a big fan of VHX, uh, a service where you can buy films DRM-free. Um, and I've, I often support that because it's a service where it offers you a 1080p download, uh, an MP4. It, you can go back and watch it any time. It's DRM-free, which is so important. Um, the idea of getting a digital copy that's somehow locked into a service that only works on certain devices, that it just seems like... Uh, not exactly a step backwards, but it seems daft, especially when you could feasibly, depending on the country you live in, the legality, you could make a copy of your Blu-ray or your DVD anyway. So, yeah, yeah it's problematic. And I, I also get very annoyed when these companies release um, digital copies that require a disc, <laughs> which mm, just yeah. to me seems <laughs> insane. And uh, and it, you know, we we need to be getting away from uh, mass packing, mass amounts of plastic packaging, rather than. Uh, thinking up reasons to have extra plastic yeah so actually do you know what i've never ever um when it comes to digital copies i've never redeemed one in my life i've never set it up or even bothered to look at them and i kind of like i said someone at work was saying oh yeah but you can watch films on your phone or on your ipad 
I can't imagine why, why would I want to do that? <laughs> That's my sort of thing. It's like, I can't imagine a situation where perhaps if I was on a long haul flight or something like that. So yeah, digital, I'm not really bothered about digital downloads, to be honest with you. It's not something that really, um, it's something that really bothers me. I mean, uh, the way I can perhaps see that perhaps it might be a time when, um, you know, kind of like the Netflix era or something like that, you know, there was a mass cinema paper stream service or something like that. I, I, I don't know, you know, where you could subscribe to on a yearly rate and you could watch all the films on the back catalogue. I don't know that that might be something that would happen in the future perhaps. But hmm. yeah, for the time being, I'm quite happy with physical media. I have no issue with it. I hmm. think as well from talking specifically about Masters of Cinema, unless there's been some vast changes in their attitudes, I can't see anything like that happening anytime soon because they've always seemed so against um, digital copies against, or for, as far as I can tell, you know, they, they pulled out of, uh, love film at some point didn't they and uh, yeah yeah you know it's, it just doesn't seem to be a direction they want to go in at the moment um so yeah i think they pulled out of love film because i think it was to do with the fact that they just didn't get much money for it at all really mm. i think it was I don't, I don't think it was i seem to remember something them putting something out saying it was just you know basically that they the love film buy the blu-ray and that's it really and you know, don't get anything else for it it seemed wholly unfair to me anyway yeah, it's quite surprising when you find when I first found that out that that's the way that system worked. <laughs> it didn't yeah, seem fair. Not, no, not at all. Uh, it's also, it also seems that with something like a digital copy, they will be they seem very keen on keeping uh, or controlling how we view their films, and releasing it a digital copy might um, kind of erode that that control by making it available to phones and whatnot. They seem to want us to watch it in a proper in a proper way or, or their way. And I'm not saying that as a negative thing. I'm saying that, uh, that they, they want it to benefit us. Yeah. yeah. I, and um, you know, I, I, like I said, I don't have this kind of like people talk about kind of physical media, like in this kind of post-apocalyptic, you know, <laughs> like, oh my God, it's, you know, my house, you know, everyone, it, it really isn't, you know, they don't take up that much room. And when it's as good a format as Blu-ray, yeah. um, It'd be interesting to see where this 4K stuff goes, um, which I'm not really, I mean, you know. How big a screen do you need before yeah. you'll be able to tell the difference? I can't, I can't believe people of in, with a normal set TV uh, will ever want to upgrade. Yeah. It's, and, it, you know, 4K, I mean, I was having this debate about someone at work and they were saying about kind of... Um, a 4K restoration they saw. I can't remember, it was an old film, but they were telling me how you could see all the makeup and you know, the hair nets and stuff like that. And I was like, well, you're not meant to see that. You know, it's not even meant to be like that. And I don't think kind of when they're kind of releasing kind of films like this, I don't, I'm not entirely sure that that kind of format would do them any justice at all, really. I sort of think Blu-ray's kind of nailed it, really. And it, it would be interesting to see if it does take off, you know, if kind of they, they were to kind of release a few of those again. But I don't know. I can't, I can't really see it happening. Going into the first quarter releases, Tom, uh, give us the list of the releases for the first quarter. Yeah, we had um, Computer Chess, uh, Wings, Roma, Serpico, and we had a re-release of Lubitsch in Berlin, uh, White Dog, Hands Over the Sea, and Wake in Fright. Mm. Um, Computer Chess, I think we talked about this one the last time we had a year review. Um, but um, have you watched this, Tom? I don't think no, you no. on that episode, no. Oh, no, no, I've watched Computer Chess, and... <laughs> oh my god did i hate this film and i mean and it's not often that i I watch films and i just sit there and i'm like i, I can't fathom how much 
I hate this film. And I watched it and literally, I think it was the longest hour and a half of my life. And I was so disappointed because the artwork on the cover was amazing. Mm. I was going to go and watch it at the cinema. It got released here in Manchester. I didn't get around to seeing it. So, yeah, I stumped up my 15 quid for the Blu-ray. And, uh, yeah, I thought, oh, God, this is going to be a pretty grim start to the year because I just could not think of anything I liked about this film. It was that, and someone told me it's this mumblecore nonsense sub-genre niche thing. I, I don't know. I couldn't stand it, and I have no intention of ever watching it again. But don't let me put that off from buying it. Because <laughs> buying Master Cinema DVD is, is very important, of course. <laughs> the the uh, the best thing about the computer chess release in Myers was one of the supplements, I think, um, where you get uh, a proper in-depth uh, interview and kind of a look behind uh, the workings and the logic behind the making of the film, which I found uh, quite interesting. Um, but the film itself, no, didn't really do anything for me um i didn't have such an adverse reaction as you did tom but um didn't really get grabbed by it no what about you craig yeah i think i remember talking about i think we talked about it last year yeah, on the end of year I one and so. uh, i think me you and james last year all kind of had the same feeling i can't remember if definite but I, yeah i uh yeah i i didn't feel angry or as hateful (laughs) (laughs) i certainly didn't get anything out of it um and i really didn't understand what all the fuss was about um yeah it didn't it didn't do anything for me to be honest no uh one film that did really do it for me was wings oh yes the dual format um and this i just found it really surprising how effective that um uh, ben Burt's score was where he kind of uh, redid uh, reinstated some um, um, some uh, sound clips or sound effects in the film and that really that elevated the experience for me quite a bit uh, more than I would have thought uh, before I watched it and I was also just really grabbed by the the story itself really sweet and engaging and emotional and also the just the picture quality and the uh, the cover of the film uh, everything was just uh, top notch for me it's do you know what wings is it's a good version of pearl harbor yeah <laughs> it's, it's it's an enjoyable version of pearl harbor and i watched it and like you said that you Kim, and i'm going to talk about it when we get around to our favourite release, but um, yeah, I had an absolute riot with this film. It was just so well made and entertaining. And yeah, I, I was really sucked into that story. It really touched me, actually. And I don't know whether it's kind of sort of my changes kind of circumstances personally, but I was like, oh God, I'm really touched by this. I'm really moved by it. And ironically enough, Pearl Harbor was on last night and I watched a bit of it and I was thinking, God, this is a really awful film. <laughs> a, t- a, t- a totally awful, horrible film. It's everything Wings isn't. And um yeah, that Ben Burt's got. I mean, I had it on upstairs with the projector on the surround sound. It's amazing. He sort of, it's a score and like just enough sound effects to give it a bit of oomph. Mm. And um, yeah, it's such a big film. I, mean, I want to know how they did all the explosions in that film. So I'm sure I saw people getting killed. It was, <laughs> it was so realistic. And it was just, yeah, it really, really grabbed me. And um, I, I, I almost got this uh, Wings imported over from, I think Universal put it out a couple of years ago now, actually. I think I just forgot about buying it, but um, yeah, I, I, I just love this film. It's, it's just it's so entertaining. I mean, I can see why it won the Oscar. It was the first film to win Best Picture, wasn't it? So yeah, definitely, it was. It's, a, it's an amazing film. Yeah, I mean, I, I can kind of uh, just repeat what you said. Really, it's funny that you mentioned the Michael Bay connection as well, because um, that was exactly what went through my mind as well. And <laughs> it, it is the kind of proto blockbuster that 
set set certain molds that and if you without trying to kind of i think people will have negative connotations if i say this but i don't mean it that if you look at something like a michael bay blockbuster even something like transformers and you look at the sort of things that he hits that connect with people they're also in wings but like you say it's a really good one rather than a really bad one um (laughs) but even the bad stuff there are little elements that are actually there too like wings has uh, a moment where it kind of sleazily looks at clara bow as she takes her clothes off and i I thought at that moment because the michael bay thing had already clicked in my head i was like oh god that's the megan fox gets on the motorbike moment Uh, (laughs) I i did find it really hard to shake that feeling but but yeah it's a it's a very good blockbuster rather than a very bad one um and yeah i loved it and i i can definitely definitely happily repeat everything you said about the score and i listened to the other score as well i i didn't listen to the, watch the film in its entirety with the other score but i dipped in and out of it and uh yeah the one <laughs> the ben burt one with the sound effects worked so much better and kind of added so much more to the film really made it dynamic and i've seen a i've seen silent films before where they've used sound effects and both watching them on Blu-ray and DVD, and also I've seen them live where they've used sound effects, and there's so many times where it doesn't work, um, and so many times where it feels incongruous, um, and it never once felt incongruous watching Wings. It felt very much of the piece, and uh, yeah, it really added a great deal, and it, so did the the tint tint effect as well. I can't remember, mm. I can't remember the exact effect, the name of it, but the the thing that they used to add. Uh, colors to the explosions and all those sort of things which i think really added a great deal too it's such a dynamic and interesting film uh, that yeah. really captures your attention definitely uh, also for those who are perhaps a bit put off by some films this will be an excellent starting point for them kind of a uh, an a transition from uh, sound film and color film to something that is black and white and uh, more uh, in line with the sound films yeah, so if you if you like Michael Bay but you fancy a silent film, <laughs> Wings. Is... If you want to watch a good Go Michael it. Bay film, watch Wings, <laughs> and then you're done. Uh, in February, we've got Roma. Uh, this is one I haven't gotten around to. Um, Tom, uh, have you seen this? Yes, I have seen Roma, and this was the kind of the tipping point for me with Fellini because, um, like you, Craig, I, I really enjoyed Eight and a Half, um, and kind of seeing it i suddenly, i think i suddenly got what he was all about really and it's this kind of like nostalgic kind of explosions of kind of cinematic joy and i, I yeah i really got on well with roma and i had a great time with it i thought it was thoroughly entertaining very funny um pretty bonkers and it does lose me in a few places i have to say but uh yeah i i think it's kind of made me kind of reevaluate a lot of his films actually and i went back actually after watching it and i kind of watched a few of the criterion ones and uh i think i've got i, fi- I think i finally got to the point where i get fellini now and i think i can go back and I think I'm going to kind of follow what you did and just kind of go back and kind of um, you know, start with watching his films again. Because like you guys, I think when you're saying, I, I used to watch them when I was younger, and I was just like, I don't even know why I'm pretending I like this. This is, <laughs> this is horrible. And now I think I might kind of, I think I might, I might have made the breakthrough I was looking for with Fellini. But you know, Eight and a Half, like I said, is one of my favourite films. So I, I think I, I'm going to kind of have a bit of a Fellini um, retrospective over <laughs> the Christmas period, I think. Yeah, it seems to be that a lot of people are getting into Fellini through Roma. I've spoken to a couple of people who watched this film and really enjoyed it and uh, weren't massive Fellini fans beforehand. And uh, yeah, I can see why. It's um, Yeah, it kind of feels like a distillation of all those things that make Fellini's films work. Um, and the, the cacophony of it, I just absolutely loved. The There's a, 
a scene on a motorway that's just just nuts and just so extreme in every way like both visually and uh orally as well and it just it kind of like bombards you and just like fills every sense it's um yeah it's an intense intense watch and some of those scenes where people are all sitting around a restaurant or watching a play or something and it's just just so much going on at once it's uh yeah, it's a, it's kind of a yeah, like you say, kind of as you say, kind of explosions of cinematic joy or something. It's, it's yeah, very yeah. very apt, <laughs> I think. Yeah, the, a kind of ad would would add cacophonic or however you say that word. Uh, well, I think he just does things for the fun of doing them, mm. and once you kind of get your head around that, I think it suddenly becomes a lot more entertaining. I, mean, I think when I, I think I was trying to give reason to everything when I watch these films, I'm like, oh, what's this mean, and what what's going on here, and what's he trying to say? But you just think, oh, that's good fun you sort of enjoy it a little bit more. And that's how I kind of felt with Roma. Yeah, I, I also really, um, I'm a big fan of uh, Hodorowski and I kind of watched more Fellini because I'd heard that Hodorowski was a Fellini fan and I'd heard the comparisons to Fellini. So I kind of wanted to better understand that. And I, I can kind of see a kind of a, a, a gateway into Fellini through Hodorowski in a weird sort of way going backwards. Um, the The sort of, kind of looking past the things that I don't quite get, but to look to the things that are kind of joyous about those films. And Roma definitely had a sense of a Hodorowski unhinged about it that I liked. I, I went to watch um, uh, El Topo uh, at the cinema uh, a couple of months ago, and there was a professor who said that Hodorowski, he had, he had said about El Topo that if you are great, El Topo is great. And if you are limited, El Topo is limited. And I think I think I'm limited, to say the least. It, it was not... I'm, I'm obviously great. <laughs> I love that. Uh, but moving on, um, Serpico, uh, that was the next release. We got uh, a Blu-ray release. Um, this is one I watched a couple of years ago. I didn't get around to it this time uh, when preparing for this episode. But uh, I remember really enjoying it. Uh, it's proper... Um, proper police thriller that um, really gets into... I think it's set around the late 70s, early 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, early 70s. Actually. Early 70s, yeah. okay. Um, but I, I really enjoyed this one with uh, Al Pacino uh, in one of his uh, most uh, famous roles. Yeah, I went back to it again and watched it, and I, I, I forgot how much I really liked Serpico. And it kind of belongs into kind of a, a, a sort of film where I can watch this in the French Connection and American Gangster, and I kind of see them look like very much part of the same family of kind of corrupt New York police cop films. Mm. And um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed seeing it again, actually. And um, I, the only thing that sort of slightly surprised me was I found Al Pacino a little bit annoying this time around. And I, I think it was something to do with like, the fact that he, he looks more and more like Jesus as the film goes on. <laughs> and I, and I, I, I think that's entirely intentional as well, actually. I really do think he was kind of going for that. So that was slightly bothering me. But uh, he, he's kind of shouting. He has to do his shouting routine in every film, doesn't he, Al Pacino? And he certainly kind of put one on, on here. But, yeah, I really enjoy it. I love going back to it. And it looks fantastic as well um, for such a kind of a gritty film. I, mm. Yeah, I kind of loved it. It's funny you saying about the Jesus thing because I hadn't really thought about it before, but I'd always thought about the fact that he's sacrificial, that he, but he does kind of follow a sort of <laughs> a Jesus-like uh, journey, and he sacrifices himself for everyone else's sins, I suppose uh, you could say. But um, that, yeah, it's. It, I liked Serpico a lot more than I did when I was younger, even though I liked it a great deal then. I think I 
I see it a lot more densely. It's a lot more dense now when I watch it, or at least I understand it a lot more densely, but uh, it's much more complex. And I always liked it as just an American gritty 70s crime thriller. Uh, but I think there's a lot more going on, uh, a lot I like about it now. Um, but yeah, I, same with you. Uh, those films, you know, French Connection, all those, I can really just sit down and watch them really happily and uh, really get s- stuck into them very easily. It's kind of like James Gray's films now as well, same sort of thing where mm. there's a wave of them and I just, yeah, so happily watch them. Next, we've got Lubitsch in Berlin, the repackaged DVD set. Um, this is one I, I didn't get, uh, basically because I've limited my purchase to Blu-ray films. So um, any of you guys picked this one up? I've got it already, and I haven't watched it again, to be honest with you. I've got, I've got it in the original until the first okay, time, yeah. and I didn't pick it up again. So I, haven't, I, didn't, I, haven't, I didn't go back and watch any of the films again, I have to confess. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same as Tom. That's one of the sitting there that I'm, you know, I'm going to watch that. I know I'm going to watch it, and I keep looking at it and thinking, yep, there's there's going to be a day where I've not got anything else to do and I'm going to watch it, but that, that day hasn't come yet. <laughs> okay, so in, so in March we've got uh, White Dog. Mm. Um, this one, I, I, was, I was kind of let down. I expected to enjoy it a lot more than I actually did. Uh, perhaps I was a bit taken aback by the severe 80s facts of the film. Um, but uh, I did really enjoy the uh, the final like twenty minutes, the escalation there, um, but I just I, I just couldn't seem to like get into the whole the whole notion of uh, the whole notion of the dog as a representation of racism. It just it felt a bit too too silly for me, basically. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm kind of with you on that one. Um, I think the thing that kept taking me out was I thought the performances were pretty awful throughout mm. the entire film, and it kept taking me out. And that girl, um, I can't remember the lead the lead character's name, but um, yeah, she really annoyed me actually. <laughs> she, she really got on me. It's, and it, it kind of you know, it's it's a it's an interesting film. Um, it's I, I can't stand films where dogs get harmed or animals it really bothers me and i i, I don't suppose spoiler alert but um yeah i was like please don't and i don't mind that the dog's savaging people to death but as soon as the dog dies i'm like oh god no you know and and, and it's, it's this sort of it, it's just it, it, it just didn't ever quite work for me hmm. that film and i don't know i can't really put my finger on it but i did i did kind of enjoy it i have to be honest with you i, I it was it was unlike i haven't seen many films like it i have to confess it was like kind of like a a really horrible version of Lassie, I suppose, in a kind of strange way. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I suppose it's very on the nose, hmm. and yeah, it, it's just it's, it's, it's hearts in the right place. I think I just don't think it, in execution it really kind of worked entirely for me. Hmm. Oh, I'm I'm definitely in the the white dog camp myself. I'm in the <laughs> Sam Fuller camp for sure. Um, and I think that I, I I see where you're coming from though. I mean, it is pretty on the nose. If anything, it's it's really on the nose. But I really like that about Sam Fuller. I like that he's, you know, often hitting you with a blunt instrument, but he's hitting you with such ferocity and like genuine emotion that I, it always comes through for me. And I, you know, I do think Kirsty McNichol is a bit, a, a bit weak in that performance. But um, no, it really works for me. And I think the fact that I'm a massive softy when it comes to animals and. Uh, I, you know, I watch films with my girlfriend and she, she kind of leans across if an animal's getting hurt and he's always going, <laughs> are you all right? Are you okay? I, I was at a film festival last year and, and someone even 
like muttered Paul Craig when an animal was getting hurt because <laughs> uh, they were so concerned that I'd uh, spent every film kind of going, oh, no, not another animal. But I think that works. I think uh, the fact that the, the ending, the way, yeah, I don't want to spoil it too much, but the ending is so tragic. Uh, I, you know, mm. I did, I shed a tear at the end of White Dog. I think it's really heartbreaking. And I think it's so heartbreaking because of the wider message that it's, it's saying that um, the point that Sam Fuller is making about us, uh, us as humans. And I think that the film says quite a bit, not just about racism, but I think it says something about the way we treat animals and, mm. and uh, I think the way we treat each other too. I think it's, yeah, I, I'm, I can get exactly where you're coming from. And I, and the eighties thing I, I've as well, it, it does stand out a little bit. It's a little conspicuous because it's so eighties, but, I also wonder, is that just part of our time that we're the eighties does feel very specific to us and something that we go, Oh, it's the eighties. And I wonder if maybe in the seventies people watched I wasn't there, obviously. If if I don't know if people watched films and went, Oh god, that's really fifties. Uh mm-hmm. and it's just that the eighties is just that decade for us and we'll we'll kind of get past that. I don't know. But yeah, I, I love White Dog. I'm a massive fan, to be honest. And I couldn't help but think of Thunderdome at one stage as well and that kind of like, the thing that was going on and um but i mean it, yeah it had its moment i mean like I say, it has its moments and um I, sometimes when things are on the nose you're right you know it's like um avatar is so on the nose isn't it but you know i still kind of enjoy avatar i'm not one of these kind of people that kind of feels the need to kind of destroy it quite as savagely as most people but um yeah i guess i guess you know some films have to be and i, I guess it uh white dog is but i i i just thought thought i wanted to i wanted to love it i think that was mm. the problem i think I, I my expectations of wanting to like it kind of outweigh what was fine there but it's definitely well worth checking out i mean it's a yeah. it's very interesting yeah and, I, and it's written by curtis Han- written by curtis hansen as well i know it's yeah yeah of, um, la la confidential fame so that was another kind of i think it's of i think it's an interesting film as well to watch uh right now for people who might uh, be yeah. seeing uh, White God when it comes out next year, which is isn't about the same thing, but it certainly takes its lead from. Uh, oh, that's a terrible pun. Uh, it takes its lead from uh, <laughs> from White Dog. That was an awful pun, entirely yeah. accidental, actually. Um, but I think White God bungles its message, and I, I don't think it really it works anywhere near as well. So I, I think it's probably a very interesting comparison point for people if people haven't seen White Dog. But they're contemplating seeing White God. I'd I'd recommend seeing the two because they do kind of swim in the same sort of waters. Also in March we got Le, Le Mani sulla Citta, uh, Hands Over the City, uh, a dual format release. Um, this is another one that I haven't gotten around to. Uh, Tom, have you you've seen this one, haven't you? Yes, I absolutely cannot recommend this film enough. And this is it, it was not my favourite Martin Mar release of the year, but it's my favourite I think transfer of the year that they mm. put out on Blu-ray. Um, it looks beautiful, and some of the kind of the aerial photography over Naples is is incredible. And it's got an amazing Rob Steiger performance in it as well. And um, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the person directed, but I saw his other film, Sal Torley Giuliano. I think it's a film that came out on Criterion as well, which I know is coming out on Blu-ray um, quite soon in the UK. So yeah, definitely check this out. It's a really really good film, and just it's just so gripping and. It's a really kind of poor analogy to use, but it's a very modern film. I think it reminds me of something almost kind of like Aaron Sorkin type dialogue going on and kind of action. And it's yeah, it's just such a surprising, brilliant film, and I can't, I cannot recommend checking it out enough. Yeah, I can definitely see the Sorkin uh, comparison. It's 
<laughs> it does kind of come down to white guys, old white guys arguing in rooms yeah. a lot of the time. <laughs> and uh, that's not said as a, that's not a pejorative. That's a, you know, that's a good thing. It's, it's really compelling, thrilling, um, really kind of like gets under your skin when you watch it, the, the machinations that are going on behind the scenes. And, uh, and you're right about the aerial photography as well. Like some of the, some of the stuff when it gets outside of those rooms is, is absolutely stunning, but, yeah, just people arguing in rooms and just like the way it just pro- proper Italian arguing as yeah. well, like, <laughs> like really like getting like arms are going all over the place. And that brilliant scene, I think it's like when they're they coming having like a kind of a town hall meeting and there's just people shouting. And it's like who you, you don't even know who's shouting, but for some reason stuff people are nodding. Yeah, it's just really I got I got well into it watching it again. It was amazing. I love I love that idea as well of everyone kind of shouting. Everything's important. Everything is the most important yeah. thing that's ever happened right this second. Uh, like that sort of shouting is just amazing and uh yeah it it, it kind of gripped me so much that i yeah I, I didn't even notice the kind of the time passing at all as well it kind of just flies by the film um yeah i was quite surprised by it i didn't i didn't know a hell of a lot going in either it was one of those covers that really catched my eye but um i'm looking forward to uh, catching it once i get a hold of the blu-ray definitely um, the final release of the first quarter is the Australian film from uh, Ted Kotcheff, Wake in Fright. This is one that I know it was on Netflix, and I was uh, planning to watch it on Netflix. I hadn't gotten around to purchasing yet, but uh, it had disappeared, so I didn't get around to it this time either. Uh, but, uh, Tom, have you seen this one? Wake in Fright? Yes. Yes. Um, uh, and again, it kind of comes with a disclaimer if you like animals, this film. Yeah. I because... Um... <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, I like penguins, uh, sorry, penguins, kangaroos, <laughs> sorry. And, uh, um, yeah, watching penguins get blapped wasn't really something. I penguins I... again, but yeah. <laughs> yeah well, why, where's penguins come from? I think, sorry, kangaroos. I don't know, they, they, penguins don't even hop, do they? What am I doing? No, um, seeing kangaroos get blapped was, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty harsh. I noticed there was a disclaimer at the end of the film saying that was a genuine cold, but I mean, some of them, you just see them getting shot and then they're not even dying first time around. And it was, I found it quite upsetting to be honest. But that being said, um, Waking Fright is a pretty extraordinary film. I thought um, it's not a nice film, and it's a, it's a, it's a film about the I think the dark side of masculinity and kind of it it, it kind of it, it could be set ten minutes before the apocalypse in Mad Max. That film <laughs> it has that kind of vibe to it, and it's just this horrible, horrible backwater Australian town where literally men just perv and drink booze and shoot things and try and just act like absolute animals and i was really really affected by waking fright actually once i kind of got over the the horror of seeing these poor kangaroos get blapped um i it it, it stayed with me for a few days actually i have to be brutally honest with you it kind of belongs in that same kind of category as like sam peckinpah's straw dogs or deliverance or something like that it has that kind i think it kind of treads similar themes and um Australian cinema is a strange one. There's always there's something wrong with Australia and the outback. It seems to make people make incredibly strange, unsettling films. And um, it, it it's a film I I, I can I can't recommend it enough. But also I wouldn't be surprised if someone heard what I just said and said I don't ever want to watch that again. I I, I completely understand. But um, it it's shocking, I suppose. And if obviously you kind of have this this scenes of the animals being shot, but it's shocking I think because of how far down the kind of the rabbit hole of the darker side of man it goes and i i was yeah i was completely taken with it and 
Um, oddly enough, I, I'm kind of really looking forward to watching it again because now I can kind of, I know when the horrible bits are going to happen, I can kind of prepare myself for it a little bit better. But yeah, definitely. I, I was really, really pleased that this film got a release. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same as Tom. I, uh, if you kind of allow me a little plug, I did uh, interview Ted Kotcheff and I asked him very much at length about the kangaroo sequence. Um, there's a big two-part interview at Film Divider uh, where I went into de- where he went into detail about it, and he went into detail about how upsetting it was for him as well um, because they went out with kangaroo hunters, and um, mm. yeah, he I mentioned to him that I was a you know like I said a big softy when it came to animals, and I'm a vegetarian too, and he was saying he's vegetarian, and he his producer I think it was his producer was vegetarian, and they kind of went <laughs> out on this kangaroo hunt, and one of them fainted, and they they were really upset by it. But I think that's part of why it works. And they mm. didn't kill animals to make the film, which is a, a big distinction, I think, that's quite important. Uh, they went along and filmed mm. something that was genuinely happening. And, and that makes it all the more upsetting. But uh, I think it's upsetting and shocking with purpose, which is the important thing. Um, and yeah, it's, yeah, it's, man, it's, it's such a cheesy phrase, but it's such a trip to, to watch... Um, waking fright and <laughs> such an unpleasant trip uh but one that's definitely worth worth taking is um yeah it's quite a film it's it's really something and if if you've never seen it it's uh, an experience you're definitely not going to forget and i think it's definitely worth worth tracking it down there was quite a bit of debate about the transfer on this one uh i read many complaints that it felt too like too scrubbed too digital uh did any of you to notice that I think to be honest, it's more the source material. I think okay. would be the issue there. I think it's a, probably a pretty old print of it, and I think they kind of done what's best they can. I didn't notice it, but it didn't look too kind of scrubbed. I was actually going to mention something we didn't actually talk about, Craig, and that's Donald Pleasance in this film. Mm. Um, he's, I, I think he, in any film he's in, he seems to kind of elevate it a little bit, but he always gives this slightly peculiar performance. Donald Pleasance, and he always, he, I always find him quite a deeply unsafe. I never trust Donald Pleasance when I see him <laughs> in the film. I always think he's up to no good. And uh, yeah, he really worked for this for me. He really kind of creeped me out. Yeah, as well. The, the film's got this whole thing where everything is a little off kilter. Everything's a little unsettling. Even something that seems incredibly kind of uh, normal and fine and, oh, that's going to be okay. It turns out to be horrendous. Uh, it's got that kind of, it takes the film noir idea of a, a regular Joe going into a, into a situation and it gradually escalating and getting worse and worse. And it takes that to real extreme levels where... Um, yeah, but even even but even something that doesn't go to that extreme level is still just not right. And uh, Donald Pleasant's character really works for that because he's really not right. Um, and where he goes is is yeah to the extreme, definitely. Nice. Uh, this is one I was really looking forward to, so I was quite uh, bummed that I didn't get a chance to uh, watch it. But um, one I'm looking forward to uh, catching up on. Um, so uh, in the second quarter, um, Craig, could you list off the releases we got up there? So we had Ace in the Hole, uh, dual format, Nashville dual format, Boomerang dual format. Uh, there was also If, which was just Blu-ray. Uh, Too Late Blues was the final dual format that, that quarter. Nice. Um, Ace in the Hole. Um, this was uh, quite a revelation for me. I saw this... Um, three years ago i think and really grabbed me the whole like journalism investigating aspect and the ethical dilemmas that kurt douglas is dealing with that just uh, hit home with me and and billy wilder he seems to just manage he 
creates this incredible tension uh, and also manages to just make you sympathize with a character that is really, he does some despicable things, really. Um, just a excellent, excellent film for me. One of Wilder's best, actually. Yeah, I completely agree with you um, saying it again. And um, yeah, it's, I, um, I, I didn't actually watch it again as part of this, but I had seen, I, I had the Criterion and um, yeah, I was really taken with it and always surprised with Billy Wilder films because every time I watch one of his films, I always think, God, you're brilliant and I love your yeah. films. And and I sort of, but then I don't seem to kind of, I don't, I don't think I've seen enough of them or, or and I mean, I, I, yeah, obviously we, we discussed some like it hot, didn't we? My, my thoughts on that, <laughs> the fact that I think it's one of the most <clears throat> fun, I, I don't like it at all. But um, I always watch The Apartment every year this time. Uh, at Christmas and every time I watch that I just think it always makes me go and watch more of his films again and this was one I, I, I'm a bit annoyed at myself I didn't get around to watching it but yeah I'm so glad this has come out on Blu-ray um, it's, it's, like I say it's one of my favorite probably I think it, you know, probably my second favourite Billy Wilder film yeah I mean it's a it's a classic for a reason isn't it it's um, it's so solid Billy Wilder's just so um, so good at what or was so good at what he did and uh, yeah <laughs> I can kind of just echo all of that really it's it's just such a compelling film and and i think as well it's he's very good at make he was very good at making films that had timeless themes that what that when you watch them they feel very much of their time but the the theme actually applies very much to now as well so that type of journalism isn't something that you exactly have now but you know that tells us it, it, there's so much that you can relate to in in modern media with that film i think it it's so interesting the every week there's something that I think, oh, that's, you know, that has some sort of similarity or makes me think of Ace in a Hole in some way. And the way that journalists uh, behave, some journalists, the bad journalists, the way they behave and <laughs> the way that the good journalists behave. Um, you know, even this week we've got so much coming out of it, this uh, Sony hack, and it just makes me think about the the way, the kind of mirror that, that Wilder held up to journalism at the time and, and how it still applies, I think. He, he, Billy Wilder is one that I he strikes me as like an incredible American director and I was really surprised when I found out that he was an Austrian-Hungarian born <laughs> yeah. filmmaker he just he makes these um, the the epitome of American films for me uh, and he's such such a diverse filmmaker and deals with so many issues that relates to American societies. It's such an, such an interesting filmmaker for me. I can't wait to discuss a film like Double Indemnity. Yeah. Mm. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, I think I'm hopeful that um, Master Cinema might pick up a couple more. Uh, I'm wondering if there was a restoration of Fedora a couple of years ago, his last film or his next to last film. Um, so I'm kind of hopeful maybe they might pick that up, but Obviously, you know, The Lost Weekend and Double Indemnity as well. So I really love The Seven Year Itch. It's kind of one of Billy Wilder's slightly <laughs> sillier films, but I, I think it's great as well. Sunset Boulevard's obviously amazing. Uh, yeah. I, and Sabrina. I really like Sabrina too. I think he's just <laughs> such a... Uh, every film, even if it's not got great, grand themes, it's still so incredibly solid. And like you say, they, they feel like defining American movies. Um, and they <laughs> certainly defined my view of that era. Um, when I was a kid, the 40s and 50s in America to me were Sabrina and Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard. Mm. That, that that was how I saw that period. I would really root for uh, a Blu-ray of Five Grades to Cairo. That was probably 
one of the greatest surprises I had when I watched uh, some uh, wild early Wilder films. Yeah, I've, I'm not sure I've seen that. I've not seen the fir- his first two films. That was like his third, is that right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, a kind of an early early Wilder would be pretty cool. The next one that we got was uh, Robert Altman's Nashville. This is one I've actually uh, never gotten around to seeing. It's one that I know it was, I think it even was a um, a part of the curriculum in a class I was taking, but I was... I think I skipped it or I was sick. I want to say I skipped it, but um, um, it's one that I, I really do want to watch, but I just just haven't gotten around to it. I feel like this and Shortcuts feels kind of similar. And I wasn't a huge fan of Shortcuts, but uh, I didn't enjoy it. Uh, so Nashville, I hear from people who didn't enjoy Shortcuts as much, they... Uh, particularly like Nashville more. It feels like it's more accomplished than Shortcuts was. Tom, have you seen this one? Yes. And um, I was a little bit surprised actually by Nashville because I hadn't seen it um, at all until Master Cinema put it out. And I'd obviously heard a lot about it, especially from reading Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. And I went into it and it didn't really work for me. I was thinking it, it, what it lacks really is is characters to really kind of get on board with. And kind of in Altman's films, he's not really afraid to kind of have people who you don't really like in his films all the way through. I mean, things like The Player, you know, everyone's pretty horrible and evil in that. And this one for me was, it, it felt very much reminded me of a Jean-Luc Godard film, that kind of crazy kind of switching of the narratives. And it's a very cruel film as well, um, Nashville. And... I, I sort of, when I was watching it, it, it seemed to be kind of satirizing and kind of taking the piss out of kind of country and Western music and country and Western culture. And I, I don't know, it seemed a little bit harsh and a bit unfair, perhaps. And I don't know whether or not he was trying to kind of say this was kind of like the kind of the music industry in general, because you have kind of really kind of talentless stars who are just getting picked up and basically put through this and literally being made to strip in the end. And it, 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 get, it got quite unpleasant, I felt, a lot of the time, Nashville. And I was left a little bit cold by it. Um, and I really, really did want to enjoy it. But um, it, it, it reminded me a little bit. I mean, if you were to kind of make a film about kind of things like kind of X Factor and all that kind of crap and, you know, reality pop TV, then you could do pretty much, you could do, pretty much do a version of that film based on exactly the same kind of principles that Nashville's based on. I wasn't sure if whether he was just having a pop at country and Western music in general, or he was kind of talking about kind of music in, you know, in a kind of a broader context, but um, I was left a little bit cold for it. I have to say, I was a little bit disappointed with it. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure it's quite that me- intended as that quite that mean spirited. I think it is more uh, taking swipes at pop culture and the way people behave to a towards people than it is about um, maybe that specific genre but uh, yeah I I really wish that one of you guys really loved Nashville and you were one of its big supporters (laughs) because I need someone to I kind of need someone to bounce off this this kind of cold feeling that I get from it as well and it's a cold feeling I get a lot of the time from Altman's films Uh, there's Altman films that I really love I really like The Long Goodbye I really like The Player but they feel like whilst I think they're really good films and incredibly well made, I think they feel like the, and MASH as well, they feel like the easy Altman, like Nashville and Shortcuts feel like the difficult Altman. 
And I find them very impressive films, but I never really click with them. And I am left quite cold. Like Nashville just kind of washes over me. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I, I kind of feel like I don't get it. And I maybe just, there's going to be that day that it's, it's just going to click or maybe it's, uh, something that someone's going to say. It feels a bit like when you're a kid and you don't understand quadratic equations and then someone just phrases it in a way that it just suddenly all comes clear. Um, but I don't know, maybe it just never will. But yeah, I, I felt a little cold towards it too, to be honest. But it, but it, I, I see it as a kind of an amazing feat. It does seem very impressive at the same time. You, it wouldn't get made now, would it? Let's be honest. Hmm. No, it was a bit of a struggle to get it made at the time, I think. But um, yeah, it certainly wouldn't get made now. Or you'd get a kind of a, a much more low budget version. I could see Soderbergh doing something, uh, something on TV, hmm. maybe that was in a similar sort of vein. But yeah, it does seem hard to imagine something like Nashville existing now. Magnolia, isn't that kind of similar to, or just in structure, or? Mm, not really. I mean, Magnolia has people you care about in it, and I didn't have yeah. that at all with Nashville, okay. really. But I mean, like they say, it looks impressive. It was, it was, you know, I'm glad I've seen it. I'm glad I own it. Um, it just, I, I perhaps I need to go back with it with slightly different eyes. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson's the kind of reference point a lot of the time for Altman uh, uh, in the modern age and Inherent Vice. Uh, which I haven't seen yet. I'm hopefully seeing it next week, but that seems to be getting comparisons to the long goodbye um, as well. But I, I, there's something very different about the two filmmakers. I've never quite equated them in the same way that a lot of people seem to. I Yeah, I completely agree with that, actually. Um, I don't see the similarity um, at all, really. It's, 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 I don't know if it's kind of the length of his film. He makes long American films. I don't know if that's sort of, <laughs> that's where it ends. I don't, I don't know. But I mean, yeah, I, I've never really been able to make that connection myself. I have to confess. Moving on, uh, the final release in May was Boomerang, Ilya Kazan's film. You have to say that with an exclamation point. You know that, right? Boomerang. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dual format release. Um, one that I was, I was left kind of confounded as to why this was released it didn't strike me as anything uh, anything like particular um it, it I, yeah I, I just couldn't see what what this was that made it distinguishable from any other common run of the mill patriotic courtroom drama i've not actually seen it so I, it was one of the ones i did i i bought it but unfortunately i just didn't get around to watching it when i was kind of back going back to these ones so i'm kind of i can't really kind of comment either way um, but did you, in what in what respect did you view it as patriotic? I can maybe see where you're coming from, but I just didn't. I didn't get that as a as a negative on it, and I didn't. I didn't really find it that patriotic. It was more a kind of an elevation of the justice system more than more than the American justice system. Okay, uh, I, I think I've exactly what you said. I think I interpreted it as the American justice system, like. Um, hailing that one uh and i think even there is some sort of uh musical cue at the end which or some sort of it's been like a, a couple of weeks and it it really is muddled in my mind but it just felt a bit like um hailing the american spirit yeah i, I can i can see where you're coming from i i, I didn't the films of kind of courtroom films of that time often seem to have in America often seem to have that sort of vein that runs through them. So I, I can certainly see where you're coming from, but I didn't, I didn't see it any worse than 
I don't know, a bunch of other, a lot of other courtroom films that had similarities that, that I thought I think are very good. I mean, I, Boomerang, I know what you mean. It does feel a little bit slight, but there's a kind of a completist in me that's so happy we've got it as an as another Kazan mm. film. But yep. but I know where you're coming from. That it does feel a bit like, oh yeah, that's another that's another courtroom <laughs> film. But there is some stuff in it that I really really like. I think the 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 switch of the main characters towards the end, um, mm. the kind of the transition that he, the change that he goes through, uh, which I won't I won't kind of spell out exactly what happens. But a, a, a character does change his mind in a very dramatic way. That I think. Kazan handles that dramatic change very, very well. And I think that change is very interesting about what it says about justice and uh, what it says about how we decide whether or not people are guilty or innocent and how we come to these decisions and the the competing forces that impact on this as well, because he's very much influenced by what's going on around him in the politics and what's going on around him in the town. And I think that's probably the most interesting thing about this film. And it, it's certainly every Kazan film you watch always feels a bit weird when you go back and you watch it knowing what happened to Kazan later. Um, and you can't help but kind of think like when you're watching it, thinking, Oh God, you know, just think about McCarthy. Like it's going to come a little yeah. bit later and uh, looking at it with those glasses on changes it. But, but uh, yeah, I, I, I found boomerang. I watched it twice actually uh, earlier this year. And, and the first time I was just, meh not that interested and mm. kind of it drifted past me and then i watched it again because my memory was a bit hazy and i watching it the second time it, it really came into focus a lot more and uh, I, I found a lot of the ways in which it talks about justice to be to be a bit more interesting than i first thought mm. i think one of the thoughts i had after watching it was because this is based on a true story and i thought that it would have been perhaps it would have been more interesting doing it as a documentary uh, or watching that as a documentary, I felt that the the um, the steps or the um, what he does to uh, set this as a true story, he sets it almost as a like let me tell you what happened in this town type of uh, type of thing. Uh, I think that kind of rubbed me rubbed me the yeah, wrong way. Yeah, that that framework is pretty pretty bad actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll uh, I'll admit that the the way that lays it out that's been done in other films. Uh, quite successfully but in in boomerang mm. it really doesn't work i'm trying to think is it yeah. night in the city does pretty much the same thing and night in the city mm. it works like a dream but in boomerang mm. it's yeah it's it is it is a little corny and it doesn't quite land but um yeah yeah i'm with you on that okay so moving on to the next release it is if the uh mm. lindsay anderson film a film i really really enjoy um just it, it's it's kind of this uh maybe it's my like fascination with english society but these kind of boarding school films it really just that's something that i'm always interested in and especially if they revolt against these like sinister teachers <laughs> that's always kind of uh, a fantasy um so uh, watching this film like play out it kind of hits every note that i wanted to hit and uh, yeah really a really enjoyable and uh, exciting film and also quite shocking. Totally, yeah. I, I mean, I English boarding schools and private schools in general are a, a source of constant kind of bafflement to me. Um, I have a few friends that went to them 
And it was literally, as long as you could hit a six at cricket, they weren't really bothered about how good you were at other subjects like maths and English. It was the most bizarrest kind of weird um, environments you, you'll ever hear about. And what I like about this film is every time I watch it, I always think, oh, God, you know, it's, it's not very realistic or something like that. And then the more you watch it, it, it does seem completely realistic, with these kind of sadistic housekeepers and all this type of thing. And it, just Malcolm McDowell is just so unhingedly brilliant in this film. And um, I love it. I mean, I can't remember how many times I've watched it, um, countless times now. And I, it's, it's, I think it's one of the finest British films ever made, actually. I would put it in that kind of top category of it, and uh, it's it, it it doesn't grow old. If I think it doesn't, it doesn't seem to age for me. I mean, obviously, comes the setting, doesn't the haircuts and things like that, but it it, it has a timeless quality to it, which I, I just sort of joy in them. Um, you wouldn't be able to again. I mean, as I said before, but a film like this now it would come out, it'd be it would be so shocking now if you were to make anything like this, um, and and to do it so well with such kind of finesse that Lindsay Anderson does and. Seeing it on Blu-ray was, was a complete revelation, actually. I felt like I was seeing it fresh for the first time again. And, uh, yeah, it was definitely one of my picks of the year. Yeah, it does. The transfer's uh, superb on it. And, yeah, it does feel does feel quite kind of fresh and new when you watch it. I have a terrible habit of bringing films into the context of modern day. I've done it too many times already. But uh, If is another one where it just couldn't help when you were saying about thinking about boarding schools and Britain and it just makes me think of, you know, we have David Cameron in power right now in Britain. And yeah, I, yeah, I live in London. We've got uh, um, Boris. <laughs> I didn't even want to say his oh, name. Uh, just a buffoon, <laughs> a, a, a posh buffoon as our, our mayor. And yeah, the, the, the sadism uh, just makes me think of people dismantling the NHS. And it's, uh, yeah, if is uh, another film we were talking beforehand about, uh, before we started recording about uh the Hunger Games films and the the idea of the kind of political fire in your belly that you get from uh, from those films and those those stories and and that teenagers will get and If has really got that and I I love that about it kind of this underlying rage uh, that Lindsay mm. Anderson puts into the film and it it really lands I think and uh, I kind of like you just walk away from the film wanting to smash up things and uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, it's like it's the equivalent I mean I went to go and watch Rage Against the Machine and a few years ago and I, I walked past McDonald's and I had an urge to smash it to bits and burn it <laughs> and think they'd be perfectly acceptable to do that and if has that type of thing where yeah it makes you sort of think um well you know, it, yeah it makes you angry in a good way yeah, yeah. In, in a sort of way and it, it, it makes me kind of angry to the point where I think to myself oh, there needs to be a revolution and all this type of thing and then it, I kind of get on my high horse about it and uh yeah it's it should be shown in all schools and told the next generation like this is what needs to happen. We need an armed revolution. Yeah, someone was telling me that they actually they the first time they saw it was at school, and I just thought, what an amazing experience to watch if for the yeah. first time at school, and just the weirdness of a teacher <laughs> sitting down and showing their pupils. What point are you trying to make? <laughs> uh, but but good on that teacher because it's it's such an affecting film, and uh, I can't even. I wish I'd seen it when I was. I don't think I saw it until I was maybe in my twenties, but I wish I'd seen it when I was a teenager. It would have, I really would have got that kind of rage boiling that you get from it even more. And uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's a deep, a deeply powerful film, I think, and one that um, should be seen for many years. So it's it's this sort of release is very important that it ends up on people's shelves to get picked up by un, unsuspecting teenagers. This uh, this master cinema release uh, was it the. Um like a uh, edited version the uk uh, edited version or was it the international release 
because I, I read that uh, if was censored, uh, but I'm not sure which release that must have cinema got older. This one's got it's actually got the BBFC um, board at the slate at the start of it, which says that it's an X. <laughs> so okay. so it's the X cut, which I assume is the same as the international. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I'd be very surprised if Master Cinema hadn't gone for that. Yeah. Um, I really want to get into uh, Lindsay Anderson's uh, other films, uh, especially The Sporting Life and Oh Lucky Man. Uh, I think that those two are probably the ones that are hailed as uh, some of these masterpieces. Have any of you two seen these? Yeah, I've got The Sporting Life. Brilliant. They're, they're both really great films, and it, it, I don't know if Tom had the same experience as me, but I've, I was turned off uh, when I was younger from uh, Lindsay Anderson films and a lot of the kind of kitchen sink British dramas because it felt kind of almost too close to home and it didn't mm. seem cinematic to me as a youngster. And I've come, I've no, come, no, come round to them as I've got older and I've really, really appreciate them. They're quite phenomenal films, a lot of them. And uh, mm. y- yeah, watching, you know, as that carried on as well, and you get people like Terence Davis making just extraordinary films about, about the working classes in Britain. And uh, yeah, it's something I need to go back, I think, and re-engage with a lot of that cinema. The next film that we got in the second quarter, or the final film, uh, is John Cassavetti's Too Late Blues. Uh, Tom, did you see this one? I didn't know this one. The ones, unfortunately, I didn't get around to watching, so I'm going to have to abstain on this one, I'm afraid. Craig? I did, yeah. I love Too Late Blues. Um, mm. And I think it's... I hadn't seen it before, uh, despite having seen... I think, I think I'd seen every other John Cassavetti's film. I think it was the only one I hadn't seen. And uh, it's. I'm so glad I saw it. And... It's such an interesting kind of bridge movie for John Cassavetes, and it, it it's a very entertaining film. It's a very um, interesting film to watch. I think it's there's a lot of interesting themes going on in the film. Uh, you know, gender politics, racial politics. Uh, the idea about selling out is very interesting in the film, and I, I'm a massive jazz fan as well, so that helps. But also, it's such an interesting film to watch within John Cassavetes' career. Um, because that and a child is waiting kind of represent his his studio output, and just mm. that concept is really interesting for for a director. And I wonder if Too Late Blues has been ignored a little bit, and even it's kind of derided by some Cassavetes fans. They don't like it, and I often wonder if it's a little bit to do with it not fitting into the neat story of John Cassavetes as this kind of Hollywood outsider. And uh, yeah. And I think it's it's it, but I think it's more fascinating that he made this film because it's him trying to do that Cassavetes thing in a studio, and it works in some ways, and it really doesn't work in some other ways. But it's fascinating to watch. Uh, the thing that didn't work at all for me was the ending. Uh, felt really false. Uh, the kind of felt like this tacked on happy ending where she had not to give it too much away, but she. Um, ends up being quite pleased in the end, or satisfied in the end, and I couldn't, I couldn't see how, how we could arrive at that result after what had happened. Yeah, a little bit. She's, she's such an interesting character. I think her character is more interesting than Bobby Darren's, the ghost character in the film. Mm. Um, and I think she, she's a kind of a, a proto Minnie or Mabel for Cassavetes. She's this kind of fragile but strong kind of complex woman there's a lot going on but she kind of seems like she could snap at any moment and 
Mm. I think it is undermined a little bit by the ending, perhaps. Um, but I think there's enough going on beforehand. But I think that that ending is that studio thing. I, I wonder if that ending yeah. has a lot to do with him trying to fit that into a studio mold. Um, and then when he didn't do that with something like Minnie Mousekowitz or um, uh, Woman Under the Influence or like I'm, I'm blanking now, but <laughs> anything with Gina <laughs> Rowlands, basically love streams, maybe. But it, it works so much better where he doesn't have to maybe wrap things up quite so neatly or make things mm. fit to a way that an audience will understand a lot more. Okay, so those were the second quarter releases. Um, the third quarter releases were Harold and Maud, um, a Blu-ray, Faust, a uh, dual-format upgrade, Frau Immont, uh, also a dual-format upgrade. Then we got uh, Das Kabinett des Dr. Caligari, uh, also Madame Dubery, both dual-format, and finally The Gang's All Here. Uh, so Harold and Maud, Tom. Yeah, um, I, I really enjoy. I, I, I saw Harold and Maud for the first time. Um, I think it was last year, actually. And uh, yeah, um, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. Actually, um, it kind of it was one of those films that I hadn't seen um, before, and I went into it and I kind, of, I kind of watched it and I was thinking. As I was watching it again this time round, I was thinking, God, where's that? Where, where did Wes Anderson go so wrong? <laughs> if you want the kind of like the the, the um, you know, kind of. The, I guess to kind of get into that kind of quirkiness that he does, you can kind of see the elements of it here. And what what Harold and Maud does really is it's a really genuinely moving love story. I think that's how I kind of take out of it. It's very funny and it's very dark and it kind of goes places that um, you don't really expect it to. And uh, yeah, I had such a great time with it. And um, seeing it again, I I sort of thought perhaps that... um, I might not enjoy it as much the second time around, but I certainly found myself getting well into it again and laughing a lot more as well. The sort of the kind of the interests of it and um, just a really brilliant performances all around as well. And it, I, I guess on kind of paper, it, sh- it shouldn't work, but it does. It, it somehow manages to kind of get itself together and re- really make for a, a thoroughly enjoyable film. And um, yeah, I, I, I did sure if they put this out actually. Yeah, I think that you said about the Wes Anderson thing, it's almost a problem with watching Harold and Maud now is that mm. Wes Anderson nabbed the, the colour scheme. He he nicked cat, the, one of the Cat Stevens songs for, uh, I can't remember which film it was, but one of Wes Anderson films has got one of the exact same Cat Stevens songs in, maybe two of them even. And it, <laughs> yeah, it just, it kind of hangs too heavy uh, when you watch it that it almost annoys me. But no, Harold and Maud's uh, are just such a fantastic film. I think Hal Ashby was a genius and it made so many phenomenal films. And I think Harold and Maud is certainly one of his best. Uh, I think just his ability to balance real dark humor with frivolity, with raw emotion with, I think there's just so much that he's able to just like play all of these different notes so beautifully that, uh, that so few people get right. And I think Wes Anderson, like you say, is someone who tries that and just doesn't, often doesn't get it. Um, and I, I think not just him, but a lot of people have tried to balance these sort of things and just they just can't handle it. And Harold Ashby just have, had that amazing ability. Uh, and I think Harold Moore's a great example of that. And it manages to capture really like honest portrayals, honest character portrayals in his film. Uh, and it really feels like these are these are meaningful and deep characters that have, they feel more than characterizations, which I feel like sometimes Wes Anderson yeah. films, they can fall into that trap where they are 
they are what they are described as and not really people. No, they're not. I mean, like, the Grand Pest Hotel this year, yeah. which is one of my number one most hated, I think it's like third on my most hated <laughs> films of the year list. They're, they're, they're not characters, so to speak. They're just nonsense. Well, and it's, 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 it's got to that point where it's like, I, I kind of get what you're doing. And it, you, you go back and watch Rushmore, which is just, I, I so enjoyed that film. And, it, it seems that everyone, every one of his films ever since then, he's getting further and further away into this kind of twee sort of fairy tale land, and I'm just completely lost now by it. I mean, the Grand Budapest House, I, I, I got about half through. I thought, you know what, I can't, I don't think I can carry on watching this. And yet, everyone seems to just rave about it. I don't understand it. Well, I think it's almost like Wes Anderson's not so much going further and further away, but further and further into himself. That it's that mm. Hal Ashby's characters like you say, they feel kind of like real people is because it feels like they breathe outside of this film, that there's there's more to them than just what we're seeing. Whereas Wes Anderson's characters so often feel hermetically sealed. Like he, he's got this dollhouse that he's created and they just live in these small boxes mm. inside that dollhouse. Mm. And the difference is that Hal Ashby's characters, they just kind of, they feel like we're just seeing them at a moment in their lives, which is very yeah. different. They don't feel like perfectly created characters that are just you know just right like like you know when you watch something like fantastic mr fox and you just you think well that hair is just perfectly aligned there where he wanted it and how Ashby's characters <laughs> don't feel like there's that that hand coming in and moving that hair they just feel like they're there um but yeah they're I, relatable I, they're completely i feel the same about rushmore as well i absolutely love rushmore and i, I, I don't know quite what happened but yeah Perhaps I'm just bitter and horrible and I just don't like <laughs> tween nicey nice films. But yeah, I think me and Wes, are, oh, I'm lost now, to be really honest with you. The next film we got was Faust, the uh, dual format upgrade. And this one I found particularly impressive and just really emotional. And it was like, in effect, extravaganza as well. Um, and it was like Murnau, he was firing on all cylinders and just a really really enjoyable uh film that i was uh quite surprised by um yeah yeah i love faust as well and i mean going back to this um the, the blue and i i actually compared the kind of you know the blu-ray to the, the dvd that came out just to kind of see you know how good the upgrade actually was and i was pretty gobsmacked really by how how faust looks and um it's it's a I, I don't know. I don't know what's happening to me, but I, I think I, I've kind of I've got to the point now where I, I'm starting to enjoy films like this a lot more. I used to find them a lot of hard work, you know, kind of silent stuff. Would, would kind of it would take me a long time to get into it. I have to kind of watch it and several times before I I could, couldn't genuinely say oh, I enjoyed it. I, I kind of appreciate it, but I really enjoyed Faust for the first time watching it this time around. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I was so pleased with this Blu-ray. I think it's a, a really great one and great artwork as well on the front. I was really really pleased with that. Yeah, it's it, like you say that there's a lot of times where silence to some people may seem like homework, and I, I do get that that vague yeah. feeling sometimes. Not not too much, and uh, but you know, this year Faust and Wings, it's kind of like what a fun mm. <laughs> fun year for silent films from us <laughs> in cinema. Uh, that if you're Faust was one of the first films, first silent films I saw, maybe either that or Cabinet of Caligari was the first I think, and I remember leaning forward peering at the screen trying to see what was happening because of the vhs uh copy not being particularly good and yeah the, the, there was a marked improvement when i saw the dvd and then the blu-ray is still an eye-opener um and yeah just phenomenal visuals it's like you say an extravaganza um 
it's kind of hard not to fall in love with Faust. I don't, I, I can't see how people, people who don't watch silent films, just it's crazy to me. There's so much, there's so much joy to be had there. I think people do see the work and they maybe don't notice that, or don't give them enough time to realize how much fun these films can be. There's, there's easily as much fun going on in the 1920s as there is now of course i mean it's taken me a while to get there i have to be brutally honest with you it has taken me a long time but i sort of feel i've crossed that bridge now and um yeah it's it, it's one of those films as well where i just want to take stills off it and hang them on my wall all the time so like <laughs> kind of create bonkers imagery it's just it's, yeah it's just it's a joy of kind of you know viewing pleasure really and um I did lend it to someone at work, actually, and they, they were kind of in a similar position, kind of have a kind of love-hate relationship with silent films, feel like they should love them, but kind of can't really sat, sit through them, and they, they brought it back, and that, you know, it's an absolutely phenomenal um, piece of work, so I'm just, yeah, I'm really glad they chose it for being an upgrade, actually. Yeah, and like you say, like the stills, that, that image of them riding on the horses just is amazing, I definitely have that on my <laughs> wall, and any image with Emil Jennings as uh, Mephisto, I think, he's just so much fun, every look that he gives is just... Uh, a joy um yeah that's one of my favorite performances i think is him as mephisto also i think this was a murnau restoration fund was it not uh I'm not yeah sure i think it was there's there's been a few in the collection i think even yeah, yeah. if one one thing i noticed that because i was watching uh les miserables today and they kind of before uh the film starts it says restored in 2012 by pathé and that's it but in Murnau's restoration, the the Murnau restoration films, they have like a three page description of where they found the negatives and the uncle of the man <laughs> who kind of cleaned up. I love how in detail they go into uh, the restoration. Yeah, I, I love that stuff. I think uh, Diary of a Lost Girl was a Murnau restoration one as well. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. it's Pap's film, but. Um... Yeah, I think it was one of those too. And yeah, the that stuff at the beginning, I love it. I love it when I go to festivals yeah. <laughs> and see a restoration and they have a big, like, like three minutes of text beforehand reading about what happened. I'm fascinated by it. Um, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to restorations. It was... <laughs> so it's, it's something <laughs> I definitely enjoy. It always makes me where these films end up. It's like, you know, like people like just randomly find there was, a, I can't remember what film it was, but it was, the film was actually called Untitled. And it was like deemed lost or something like that. And it was actually found. Um, you know, someone was like, oh, what's this film called? And like, oh, it's untitled. And it was actually the film untitled. <laughs> and it's like, God, you know, how does it happen? You know, I mean, if, there just needs to be like a kind of one day, I think, where all the kind of archives and all just get together, just have a good look through the thing. How can you not know? Or, I mean, we've got it in Manchester at the moment. We have a film archive there. And there's reels and reels and reels of films, which no one knows what's on them. Yeah. And they're kind of like going through them, and it's like, you know, occasionally you go down there. I'm like, I say to the kind of the, the lady that, you know, the archivist, I'm like, have you found anything decent lately? And she's like, oh, no, 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 yeah, we'll let you know he has. But I, I just, you know, it's just crazy that all these films might be out. Money. There. Just know, quite money. Exciting. Money yeah. is the yeah. thing. Yeah, they just found a, a, a short, a Mickey Mouse cartoon in Oslo, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, actually, uh, which they thought was uh, lost. I can't remember what it was called but it was from 1926 or something yeah it's a christmas one isn't it um yeah i think so yeah, yeah. i read about that too and it, it yeah it's but it's money that is, is sadly the reason i've uh, i've worked in uh media libraries in the past and yeah if someone has the time and the money to go and find something they can find out what it is but sadly there's not enough money going into these things for for archivists to to really root in and 
find these films, restore these films. Yeah, even find out what they have, which is incredibly sad. Um, so moving on to the next release, it is Frau im Mund, um, the Fritz Lang film. And this is one I I kind of struggled with it uh, during the first half. Uh, I found it to be a bit too uh, too plodding, um, a bit unnecessary. So, um, but once it once it really got um, the gang together, so to speak, and they had uh, more of an more of a target, and the, the film felt like it had um, more of a uh, destination, uh, then it really came together for me, and I, I really enjoyed the the latter half of the film. Um, but Tom, uh, what did you think about Frau Mond? Um, yeah, I, I love Frau Mond actually. Um, give me Fritz Lang any day of the week, and I watched this up on the old big screen, and uh, I was completely mesmerised by it. Actually, hmm. um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I'm not going to kind of go too much on it because I want to kind of save it a little bit for when we do talk about it eventually. Yep. Um, things, but um, yeah, I, I had a great time with Frau Mond. I, I, I love how Fritz Lang films work. I really kind of enjoy just the more kind of an aesthetic basis and. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean. It does take its time to sort of get going, but when it does get going, I think it's well worth the yeah. journey. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to echo that again. It really does take a while to get going. And I, I think <laughs> if anyone sits down to watch this and they're not feeling it in the first, even the first hour, yeah. let let it go, keep going and it, it persevere because the the latter sections are amazing and really, really yeah. entertaining thrilling funny there's a whole zero gravity sequence that i just think is absolute <laughs> joy it's really really entertaining um yeah i loved where it going it went i mean after the countdown basically it really gets going and then it's uh so much fun yeah. but there's even some great stuff in the early scenes um formally the when uh he goes to see the guy uh who has no money and the, some of the kind of the way the cross-cutting in that is is really interesting. Not even cross-cutting, even just the cutting in that scene is really interesting. The way it's done, and uh, yeah, I think it, I think it's a it's a really enjoyable film, and I'm glad I saw it because I didn't really know much about it beforehand. It was kind of one lang that slipped by me, uh, so I wonder if maybe it slipped by a few other people. But it's definitely worth tracking down. Then uh, we got one of my favourite releases of the year, which we will I will talk more about uh, later. But we got Dr. Caligari. Uh, dual format release um yeah proper excellent film really i watched it earlier today and i was just um yeah i was uh so pleased watching the image quality in this one really really impressed by the restoration done yeah totally yeah it's uh yeah it i mean watching it again as well it's it's one of those ones where i remember when i say um um seeing it at, at, at university and not quite appreciating it. I've gone back to it a couple of times since and I, I think it was, it was it was one of those um, films where I, I, I thought I was supposed to like it a lot more than I actually did and having gone back to it on this Blu-ray, yeah, again it's one of those films where I just want to take stills off it and have it have them all over my wall and again the Blu-ray is just so, it's just so good and it's such a fantastic advert for getting these older films out on blu-ray and seeing what the format can do so yeah again i was absolutely thrilled with this one yeah it's there's <laughs> i totally agree and for a visual film it's so important that the the transfers of such a high quality um so it was lovely to see it in such a, a pristine transfer um the one thing that i was a bit sad about though is that they I don't know if they were too late on it or whether they didn't decided not to buy it, but they didn't include the John. There's been a recent John Zorn score that he did, uh, an organ, oh yeah, an organ one, which I I saw, um, 
I saw that version, the version with the organ. Unfortunately, I I watched it on French television, uh, streamed online, but it 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 was kind of a they kind of put it up. It's a bit like the BBC iPlayer. Uh, the the French version had it online like that that you could watch it. And uh, it, the the John Zorn score is fantastic, and uh, it was such a shame that it's not included on this release. It does make me wonder if we're going to get the situation we got with Metropolis this year, where you're going to get another release at some point that kind of collates everything. But um, but even still, uh, it is a really really fine release, uh, even with that minor omission. And yeah, it just does look stunning. And I I haven't actually checked out the extras on it, but I think they're pretty much the same as the DVD ones. And I I, I remember the Callot uh, commentary being really good on that. Um, hmm. uh, so that's worth checking out if you haven't. Um, but yeah, uh, the next one is uh, Madame Dubarry, uh, dual format release. Uh, this one is one that I haven't gotten around to. Um, but Tom, have you watched this one? Uh, no, <laughs> and I do only. And when I was kind of, I had a pile of ones I hadn't watched, and I was like, oh god, um, <laughs> can I? Oh, it was it was a toss up between. I can't remember what the other one was, but I just thought, damn it, I, I I can't get around to watching it right now. So, yeah, we'll have to kind of uh, have to check that out quick. Because I'm, I'm I'm reliably informed it's a pretty great film as well, and I need to watch it. Mm-hmm. Lubitsch is getting the short trip. <laughs> He's, oh, he he yeah. really is. I, that was one I missed as well. So I, <laughs> I've completed the set there. But I did hear, uh, if you know um, Adam Batty from Hope Lies, I seem to remember him tweeting mm-hmm. quite excitedly about it when he watched it. So, um, yeah, it does come recommended by people who, who know what they're talking about. So it's one I'm, I'm definitely, as that pile that I've been working through all year, uh, that's unfortunately been at the bottom for some reason but i'm gonna get to it uh i'm very much looking forward to it yeah uh, i think i saw it uh it was up on youtube but um i couldn't make myself watch the youtube cut of this no um, no. um so uh, the final film was uh busby's the gang's all here yes i have seen this film before so I... <clears throat> yeah tom you now, can start yeah yeah i i enjoy the gang's all here okay um from a purely kind of technical cinematic point of view, I enjoy it, but I can see why it could be a chore for some to get through. And um, I, I, I'm glad it's in this collection because I, I'm, it's something I'm going to talk about perhaps when we get to the kind of the, the kind of the rounding up. But hmm. I, it's important that kind of kind of lay um, sorry distributors like Martin I think have a, a good variety of films going out and i think to have something from that period and something by by i i think it's important to have those films in the realm and i think the gangs of here is a, a perfect good example of that i enjoy it um i'm not quite sure when i'll go back to it again but yeah definitely it was nice watching it and you know just when i say from a visual pleasure point of view i had a good time with it i i don't what what could be a chore about the gangs all here it's so much fun <laughs> <laughs> There's a sharp take, intake of breath then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but carry on. Yeah, I can I can save my thoughts uh, for last. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I yeah, I love I love the gangs all here. The um the kind of kaleidoscopic uh, visuals of it, I just think are amazing. I think Kamina Baran is hilarious. I think uh I think some of the songs, I think even the the kind of the slightly weaker musical numbers like the um there's a kind of a, a swing sequence 
um, which I'm not sure entirely works, but it's still really fun. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, I just think it's great. I think the swooping camera work that he has, these kind of cranes yeah. oh, yes, that just yeah. go down out of anywhere, the lot, the kind of abandon, absolute abandonment from the start of logic, uh, spatial logic, yeah. which isn't an accident. He clearly knows that he's abandoned it and doesn't care because. Um, the, the the spectacle kind of overrides the logic and i also think he's having a bit of fun with it the the opening is a gag about there being no spatial logic the the fact that it starts with a, a with a port and then it pulls back to show you a, an audience watching it which makes no sense because what we've seen is just too big to have happened on the stage and i think i think there's a you know, there's a chandelier hanging from the ceiling of a garden at one point which is outdoors <laughs> so it's it's kind of hanging from the sky um it, yeah i i think Gangs all his an absolute riot and absolutely fantastic. I don't, I don't understand how it could ever be a chore, and I'd happily go and watch it. <laughs> the minute we stop recording, I'll happily put the gangs all here on again and just watch it. And it's uh, before I forget, there's an absolutely brilliant uh, commentary on this one as well. Uh, it's a really, really good one that's definitely worth mm. checking out. I really did enjoy the technical aspects of the film. I think it is quite a feat uh, technically, with as you said, the cranes and just. The use of colors and how he inserts motion so elegantly into the picture. Um, but uh, what I really struggled with was that that was all there was for me. Um, it was literally like 20 minutes of story and 80 minutes of singing and dancing that it didn't amount to anything for me. It felt like a really puff piece with annoying song and dance numbers that with no characters that I enjoyed and little to grab my attention other than watching some interesting camera movements every other, or sometimes throughout the film. Uh, I couldn't, I really, I struggled to, I struggled to uh, engage with the film, to care for the film or to understand what it is that I'm supposed to be getting out of it i think you're supposed to be having fun with it yeah i think, I, I think you need to i think you need to lighten up <laughs> i think that's the problem here i think i, I, okay. I, I, I think you, you know, I, I think you need to stop being so miserable and just have and just enjoy them now nah, of course it's, it's, i know what you mean it's like did i i think i explained to you my theory of yeah. these type of films they they evolved into action films and that, that sounds sort of ridiculous when you think about it these films are kind of wafer thin plots and they're just permeated by bits of awful dialogue and great scenes of kind of joyous action which is what these i mean like singing in the rain watch it it's a ridiculous film it's almost it's almost awful but it's brilliant because it has great dance sequences and stupid dialogue and you know it's like watch face off and then watch singing in the rain it's the same film i swear to god it's the same film and that's how you have to look at them and that when you kind of get your head around that they become a lot more enjoyable you see i'd say that singing in the rain actually does have quite a good plot i actually quite like that but i wouldn't de- i wouldn't defend the plot of gangle here i think i mean the in terms of engaging with the characters themselves i totally know where you're coming from i mean the the main guy in it is i mean if if you excuse my language, is a bit of a disc, basically. He just yeah. behaves in a terrible way. And the woman at the end kind of goes, ah, that's all right. It doesn't matter. Uh, and you just go, what? Where did that come from? It just, uh, and you know, the, but there's a, there's a love song smack in the middle, uh, journey to the star, to a star, which, yeah, like I don't really care about the characters in relation to the, <laughs> the love song, but I think the love song's great. And I think, the way they perform it's brilliant and i think the way uh possibly buckley shoots it and everything about it is wonderful and uh and 
Yeah, I I know where you're coming from in terms of the story. It's it, it's a bit of a hard one to argue that the story is where the where the meat of it is or anything. But um, I mean, it, how can you not love uh, Eugene Pallette? <laughs> his head <laughs> flying towards the screen at the end, screaming "Journey <laughs> to a Star." <laughs> <laughs> No, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, <laughs> I think I think by that po- I think by that point I had really I was just waiting for it to be done. I think after like fifteen minutes I'd gotten I'd understood what it was trying to do and I wasn't on board. And after that it was just more of the same. And by the end I was like scratching my eyes out. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one way of that's that's why we're talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I, no, I enjoyed it. I, I definitely, I, I, I would recommend the game. I, I really want more Busby Berkeley in, uh, in the Master Cinema series as well. So, uh, if what else is there that uh, you would uh, want to see? Um, uh, because I, I really do want to like explore. I've heard a lot of things about Busby Berkeley, and I that this is necessarily one for me. Uh, so maybe there are other ones that I can. Uh, uh, the Gold Diggers, uh, the, the first two Gold Diggers films you should definitely see, seek out. Uh, Gold Diggers of 1933 mm. and uh, 1935, um, they're both fantastic. Um, I'm trying to remember which one it is. One of them's got an amazing, amazing sequence about uh, kind of a, a, a song that a woman sings about her, about men at war. And um, it's kind of, obviously, it's set around the Great Depression. And it, it just, you know, those are ones that perhaps... Um, they're backstage musicals in a way, and they don't really have much of a plot in the way that Gangs All Here doesn't have much of a plot. But there's more in, say, Gold Diggers 1933, where Busby Berkeley and Leroy put something in there that is telling the story through the songs, which is something that mm. is very important um, in musicals that often gets missed. And I, I appreciate that Gangs All Here doesn't have a great deal of that. Um, but it's mm. so much better when a when a, a song moves the plot forwards, or even if it doesn't move the plot forwards, it has plotting in the song or or themes or something to say in the song. And I, I think uh, yeah, check out the the first two Gold Diggers are, are poorly poorly represented on home entertainment as well. So I think a Blu-ray, a double pack of those two from Master Cinema would make me very very happy. Mm. There's one I watched, and it's got Frank Sinatra in it and Gene Kelly. I don't know what it's called now? Take me um, out to the ball game. That's the one, yeah. I've seen that one as well, and that was on. I, I, I had a I had absolute crippling tendonitis last year, and I couldn't actually move off my chair, so I couldn't actually physically get up to turn it off when it came on the television. <laughs> but I was so glad. It's actually, it was, it was kind of. I thought, oh Christ, I'm not in the mood for this. I was in an absolute foul mood anyway, um, and it came on, and yeah, I absolutely loved it. I actually, took the, the t- t- took away the agony I was in for for a while, and uh, yeah, I, I really, I was really down with it, and. Um, I, I, to my knowledge, I don't think you can actually get it anywhere at the moment. So I'd love to see that one get moved out. And it's a you know, film in technical. It was great film. Hmm. Yeah, the thing you mentioned, Craig, about uh, the songs moving the plot forward, I think that was also one of the things that I, I really missed from the gang solve here. Something that related to what we were actually meant to be watching. It felt like intermissions every time the songs came out. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's tricky because Berkeley cares so much more about the spectacle that he's creating. Yeah. Uh, so he does have a habit of 
letting the plot grind to a halt whilst he does an incredible musical number featuring massive <laughs> bananas and strawberries. Uh, and if you don't enjoy the massive bananas and strawberries, then that's just annoying. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but if if you get on board with that, it's obviously more fun. But yeah, I I can see that if you if you are more um, more a fan of musicals that do that with the plot uh, moving forward in the songs, Berkeley ones maybe are a bit of a bit of a chore i suppose <laughs> i still don't quite get it but uh, <laughs> everyone has different things <laughs> yeah um moving on to the fourth quarter releases we have eye clowns youth of the beast spione diary of a lost girl thief of baghdad intolerance and les miserables um eye clowns i didn't uh, have a chance to catch uh tom no i've not watched no? it yet either that's the last one that's the last one of the of the year that i didn't i wasn't able to see i have bought it um and i wasn't able to get around to watching it but this that's the last one that i didn't get to see so i yeah. i did see eye clowns and uh i was a little bit disappointed to be honest um hmm. so i don't want to put you off but i'd say walk walk uh, <laughs> no, no. yeah walk don't run um it, it's okay but I didn't realise until afterwards, actually, I hadn't understood the context of how it was made, that it was originally intended as a TV movie, essentially, or a TV documentary that then also had a cinema release at the time. And um, it does it does feel kind of like minor. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like Fellini firing on all cylinders. And um, it, it's certainly an interesting love letter to, to clowning and... Uh, if you're interested in the history of clowns, it's got a lot going for it, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> I, and there's another problem, a slight problem, which maybe puts me off it a little bit, that I don't, I've never, even as a child, I've never found clowns particularly funny. Uh, and no, I, I so sometimes where there's an extended sequence of, of a circus where clowns are, you know, falling over and everything else that they do, which... I can appreciate the the talent that some of it takes, and and Fellini obviously is in love with that, and in love with the the actual difficulty of that. And but it just doesn't connect with me, and I, I kind of got a little, if I'm honest, got a little bit bored during some of the the more extended sequences. Um, so I was a little bit disappointed, to be honest. Uh, so Octopussy is not your favourite film? <laughs> <laughs> no, for um, for many reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Not only the clowns, <laughs> <No>. right? <laughs> this was released uh, in between Satyricon and uh, Roma. So um, it feels like kind of wedged in between two perhaps larger films uh, from what I gather. Yeah, I, I, and, it, and it does feel smaller too, to be honest. So um, mm. I think, you know, if you're a Fellini fan, it's probably a must. And I, it's, I, I will say this every single time, but... Every Masters of Cinema release that they put out, it feels essential, even if it's minor in this respect. I'm so happy there's a Blu-ray of White Clowns out there because I think it's important that we have, you know, this catalogue that, you know, that sitting on my shelf, I can try and, you know, I'm nearly there. I can, you know, go through all of Fellini's films and just watch the lot. And that that's important, I think. So I'm, I'm very happy that it exists, but um, it does feel like part of that catalogue that needs to be there rather than a film that I'm going to rush to go and watch again. So uh, the next uh, Blu-ray that we got in the fourth quarter was uh, Seijin Suzuki's Youth of the Beast, dual format release. And uh, we talked briefly about this one when we discussed the um, fourth quarter releases, didn't we, Tom? Yes, yeah, we did. And it's like we talked about, it's one of those gangster films that kind of it melds together with other gangster films uh, 
if you're not really well versed in that universe it's kind of hard to distinguish between them i well yeah i went back and i watched it again actually and um i i kind of i really really enjoyed it this time it's a really seedy kind of nasty horrible film and i was down with it mm. um, big time actually and it's kind of put me on a bit of a kind of a, a, a japanese kind of gangster trip actually and i, I loved I, it's, a, it's a kind of a really kind of bright kind of garish film and i i sort of I, it's, it's a bit of a cruel film as well it's not particularly uh it's not a very pleasant watch i didn't find but i really really enjoyed it actually and i i kind of i um remind me kind of you can sort of see where tarantino kind of riffs a lot yeah. from i think from when you watch that film and um i was really kind of surprised by how good it looks as well um on blu-ray and i uh it was i think it was the the master cinema film that i enjoyed the most this year it's, it wasn't one of my favorite films of the year but i enjoyed watching this one the most mm. i think um probably second only to wings and uh yeah, definitely. I, I, I really hope that they put more of these out, actually, these types of films, because you know, if they're kind of there to, to, to kind of be chunked out, I think you know, it'd be good to have them all out. Like. Yeah, I I absolutely love You for the Beast, actually. Um, and yeah, I think it's really CD, um, but I think it works on that level. And I think Joe, I love yeah, yeah, Joe Shishino as well. And I think uh, he, <laughs> his performance is fantastic. The moment I was roaring with laughter for about the first 20 minutes because he's just such a bastard in the first 20 minutes. He's just so unpleasant. Uh, <laughs> he, he's just doing everything that is annoying to everyone and and just being so, so, so cruel. Uh, but you kind of, you obviously, you realise why there's a, there's a reason he's doing it. But, yeah. but the, 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 kind of the degree to which he does it is kind of so, so sh- like riotous and kind of like crazy that um yeah i, I had me like roaring with laughter but i think the form the when you're saying about it kind of standing out i think the thing with suzuki is that his form makes it stand out yes. from other uh, other mm. films and i think there's moments where like the scenes where the sound drops or uh the sequence where he has uh, glass in the background mm. of the scene and, and you've got um, the way in which he frames what's going on in the foreground of the background and mm. all these sort of things it's, it's so complex and he's really really thinking deeply about the, the production design and how he's crafting each shot and uh, and not just the, sh- the shot as you see but how the how the sound is going to affect the sequence as well and uh, it, obviously it, it's an earlier film than the uh, and something like uh oh my mind's gone blank actually Tokyo uh, Drift and uh, Branded to Kill Branded to Kill thank you uh which Branded to Kill does the same thing where the, uh, there's a, the very key moment where the sound drops out and and then you've got Tokyo Drift which is pretty just wild really yeah um I think I was more yeah. I think I was just more impressed with Tokyo Drift and Branded to Kill just in terms of the uh, experimental nature and how he dares to push the limit um, with such a, I wouldn't say mundane story, but it's it's a really like simple uh, hitman story. Yeah, well, the the nuts and bolts of Branded to Kill is a really basic story, yeah. but it goes off in such a direction that it becomes almost incoherent. Exactly. Um, but yeah, like I I, I kind of like his um, things like this and Underworld Beauty, where you've got the sort of the Suzuki's kind of wild ideas, but working within within a framework where it kind of makes a bit more sense. Mm. I, I I like both, but um, I'm happy, and I have I'm happy that they both exist. Mm. Really, it's, um, but yeah, I, ja- Japanese sixties and seventies gangster movies are are really my thing. So <laughs> this is 
probably to be honest and we'll get to it but probably my favorite film release of the year okay uh from master cinema i i really really like it so i'd love to see them release more i think there's a i was talking the other day on on twitter about uh kenji fukusaku's um battles without honor and humanity because mm. uh the lead actor in a lot of them has recently died and i believe eureka had the rights to a couple of them at one point I might be wrong about that, but I think Eureka did. And I really hope they managed to get them back. And this, I think there could be some amazing box sets of these films. Nice. Uh, two films I would really like to see is uh, Tattooed Life and Fighting Elegy. I heard really great things about these two. So, Yeah, I think Fighting Elegy's got a Blu-ray release somewhere. I okay. seem to remember. It's definitely on DVD because um, I've got it. But yeah. Uh, Tattoo Life's on DVD as well, but not Blu-ray, I don't think. Yeah. Um, so the next film we got uh, is a dual-format upgrade of uh, Spione, uh, a film that I was um, I was really entertained by this one uh, more than I thought I would be uh, throughout its entirety. Um, but just this, it's just a, a really fun spy thriller uh, where you can see that Lang is having so much fun doing this kind of story yeah i was down with this um i i think when i got the the, the preview that came through from from our cinema um I, I i was really excited by just by the kind of the um the kind of the advertising material that came with that what a wonderful poster yeah. and that kind of crazy looking dude in that trench coat and goggles and i'm like i'm down with this already <laughs> and yeah yeah i had a great time with it i was um i i owned it on on dvd but i hadn't actually watched it yet and uh yeah, I, I was loving this. I was really entertained by it. And I watched it as a double bill with Frau and Mon. So oh. <laughs> kind of going from kind of what we were talking about, the kind of the, the slightly slow pace to that, to this one, it was it was something of a, uh, it, it was a bit of a kind of a different changing gears really. And uh, yeah, I had a great time. I I really need to watch this one again. So I'm not sure if I was in the wrong frame of mood or what, but I, it just didn't really click with me. Um, I like, there were some things I liked about it. And I, th- I think that cover is almost a problem because it, it, I, I was so excited by There's something about that visual. It's it's like when you see a poster when you're a kid and you're just more excited about the concept of the film than you are about actually watching it. Um, I remember seeing a poster for Army of Darkness when I was a kid and it just looked like the most incredible film that had ever been made. And then uh, the film, even though I like it, was a bit of a letdown compared to my what I'd invented in my head from the poster. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, that image just seems to sell something that I didn't really see in Spion. But um yeah, it, it didn't really click with me. I find I found the story um, a bit of a problem, uh, and I'm not sure. Maybe maybe I wasn't in the right frame of mind, or it just it, the kind of the the spy behind the scenes sort of thing. I didn't it didn't really feel as exciting as it felt like it should be to me. I'm not sure. Hmm. Did you? Was it the visuals that kind of like really sold it to you guys, or the the story? Or for me, it was. I think it was more visual. Yeah, right? yeah. For okay. me, it was the like the expressionistic nature of the uh, of the shooting that really grabbed hmm. me uh, more than perhaps the uh, the story itself. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm totally down with that as well. I can wholeheartedly agree on that one. Yeah, because I I did like some of the visuals, and they were the thing that I've taken away from it as as liking, but. There were stretches where there weren't visuals that were kind of impressing me, and that I got a bit bogged down in the. In, there's a, there's a lot of scenes where there's one woman talking to a, an older guy in a wheelchair, <laughs> and and I just they just they ground the film to a halt a little bit for me, and 
But it's, yeah, it's I, I'm going to give it another go at some point. Yeah, it's kind of the. I feel like it's like a prototype for uh, later spy films, with especially like James Bond. We have this kind of nemesis, this Blofeld character in the the, uh, the bank director. Yeah, he's kind of secretly leading this espionage organization and planning to steal information everywhere, and you you can definitely see. Um, traces of uh, late spy novels and uh, spy movies in this uh, the story here. Yeah, that's what I like about Fritz Lang film. There's always some. There's always skullduggery going yeah. on, <laughs> and, and like good skullduggery, and I, and I I I enjoy that. He, he kind of he he seems to kind. Of, he's like a bit like Hitchcock in that respect. I don't think sometimes he does skullduggery well, and I think that's what I took out of this. I was. Uh, yeah, I had a great time. They're good films if you don't believe most of what people tell you. I <laughs> think his characters yeah. a lot of there. There's always a suggestion mm, there might be something going on behind there that you you're not getting the full information on. Yeah, okay, what's the film that we absolutely hated by Fritz Lang? Uh, is it Ministry of Fear? Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Oh god, you absolutely hated that one. I was mm, uh, not too keen on it, but uh, yeah, oh. I remember uh, who was it we had on. Uh, the American critic who oh, really loved um, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, I, I, I can't remember. Yeah, no, but uh, that yeah, that that was and that was the kind of I think uh, before going back to this, that was the last Fritz Lang. No, I actually watched the um, Jamie Christie. Didn't we? Yeah. That's it, the one. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it was strange. Um, I was uh, that kind of put that kind of hit put me off a bit of Fritz Lang for a while. But I've certainly kind of watched Spioni. I was uh, yeah, back, back bang with him again. Yeah. Um. So the next film we got was uh, Diary of a Lost Girl, another dual format upgrade uh, from Pabst. And I I seem to remember that I really I really enjoyed the different turns that this film takes in how daring and how uncompromising it is in the portrait of this girl uh, that Louise Brooks plays. It feels kind of uh, kind of unique. I don't, I don't think I've seen this kind of story told told from this era in filmmaking it feels like a really a really uh, cynical and brutal portrayal of a girl that um the girl is raped and she rejected by a family and it's kind of this harsh cruel world that she is dealing with and there's no i feel like there's little uh, little joy to be had it's I, I I one thing I came when I was thinking this it was Lars von Trier yeah and it felt like that kind of without the kind of gallows humor I suppose it's a hard film to get through yeah. Diary of a Lost Girl I mean it's it's a, it's um it, it's, it's it's one of those where you sort of I'm kind of not quite sure what I'm supposed to kind of take other than sort of the kind of the tragedy of it and the fact that it is very depressing um, I mean it, it just seems like a sort of a I mean, it's what, 1929, I think it was made, wasn't it? I think sometime around then. And it was 27. And I, I, I was perhaps thinking, you know, things were kind of perhaps going in the right direction then, you know, for, for Germany. Things were kind of on the up a bit, obviously not kind of going anywhere particularly nice. But, you know, the country was kind of coming out of, um, you know, pretty dark place and well, going to an even darker place. But in terms of kind of the, the lives of the people living in the country, and I thought it'd be a bit more sort of um, upbeat and I was... Yeah, I was quite surprised by it because I just thought, God, this is just one way of just making everyone in the country even more miserable. Mm. And I was I was pretty miserable when I was watching it, I have to be honest with you. But um, 
I still think it's a pretty great film. Yeah. And like I said, really, it kind of goes places where it, it, it goes to very, very... It goes to lengths I didn't think a film made in this area would go yeah. to. And I think exactly. that's definitely to its um, to its advantage. Yeah. I, I, I didn't... I'm not, I can't say I enjoyed it, but I certainly appreciated it, I think. Yeah, and it's... Uh, you're kind of saying about the subject matter, it's a very modern... It feels very... It feels very... It's obviously not a modern film, but it feels very modern uh, ideas and themes. And that's one of the things I really like about uh, Pap's work with Brooks. Uh, Pandora, have you guys both seen Pandora's Box as well? No, I have not. Yes, yeah. Like, Pandora's Box is, I think, a, a phenomenal film. And I think it, it kind of overshadows Diary of a Lost Girl a little bit. Um, but I think Diary of a Lost Girl is still fantastic. And it's... I know what you mean, though. It's a very difficult film to watch at times. It's quite upsetting, the, the things yeah, that Yeah, definitely. It seems like both, both the movies, they deal with very erotic themes, and especially, like, amoral, amoral female characters. Both yeah, Pandora's in a Box. Way, yeah. In a way, but kind of, like, complex and not... It, yeah, it's yeah. not... At the, at the time, there were so many films where there was this idea of the, the amoral... Uh, the kind of a fallen woman and the, and the films are kind of hard to watch with a modern sensibility where you look at them and you think oh god you know that's terrible that they mm. think this woman is awful just for doing this but there's a definite sympathy to both films where and especially Diary of Velosco you get incredible sympathy and empathy yeah. I think for, for her character that, that seems a real re- statement from Pabst yeah, and I think there's a punch the air moment a little bit as well at the end when she goes back to the the place that she's um, that she kind of suffered in yeah. before, and and she's changed, and she, even though she's got the the chance to be part of the group that looked down on these people, she's not going to get consumed by that. And I think you know, I love Louise Brooks. I think she's a fantastic actress, or was a fantastic actress, and such a fascinating figure because of the way she spoke at the time was very different to how a lot of other uh, Hollywood female actresses spoke at the time. And I think she's uh, a really interesting figure, definitely. The next film we got was something quite different. Uh, the Thief of Baghdad uh, by Roe Walsh. Uh, just a like fantastical, funny, um, joyous film that uh, when I first saw it announced, I was kind of hoping for the the 1940s version, um, but still uh, getting this Walsh film. Uh, I really enjoyed that. watching Douglas Fairbanks as this uh, like really swashbuckling uh... matinee idol. Yes, that's how I was going to describe him on this because I had an yeah, I I, I just loved this film. Um, f- for the f- it was it just it felt like a proper old school. Well, it is a proper old school Hollywood adventure film. Mm. And it's just such good fun to watch. And it's the kind of the, it, it seems so tame by today's standards. Just, just someone jumping up on a balcony or jumping on something or doing something which, you know, by today's standards, you just wouldn't see it because they'd CGI it out and it'd be like <laughs> jumping across loads of buildings and things. But the, the thing here is, and I, I, I know, um, I, I just to kind of talk about when we kind of talk about things in the modern context. When I was watching Thief of Bad Dead, it reminded me of all the reasons why I really enjoyed John Carter. Mm. And it was this kind of like, just, in, just kind of out there, tongue in cheek, let's have a good time for two and a bit hours film, which is exactly what I got out of that. And the, the two kind of connected to me. And it, it just reminded me, and I actually watched John Carter again straight after I'd watched Thief of Baghdad. 
and uh, they kind of really complemented each other as well. And the same kind of beats and that same kind of um, Hollywood star kind of doing that routine. And just Fairbanks, he's just got this kind of big cheesy grin on his face all the time, and he's got this kind of ripped body. <laughs> and he just looks like a happy, cool yeah. guy. And I, yeah, I, I totally loved it. And uh, I think when we kind of get onto our roundup, um, I'll kind of go into a little bit, a bit more about the Blu-ray as well. So. Um, I unfortunately haven't watched this. I believe I've seen it already many, 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 many years ago, but I don't really remember it. Uh, it was one that I wanted to catch up with and I didn't get an opportunity. I think, unfortunately, I, the last three releases I haven't seen. Okay. I've seen, I've seen them before. I, I've definitely seen Intolerance before, but, uh, I didn't rewatch it, unfortunately. Um, also that one of the supplements on this Thief of Baghdad was the, um, the old production still so that was really interesting yeah. watching that one. Oh, definitely yeah and it was just this yeah I, yeah i just loved it it was it felt like a little time capsule of hollywood yeah, yeah. this one uh, and that was one of the yeah i just I, yeah i i was completely in love with it i had a big stupid grin on my face <laughs> throughout the entire thing um the next film i imagine you weren't grinning as much uh intolerance oh. um <laughs> oh. the blu-ray <laughs> Oh. Right, okay. Let me get this disclaimer out of the way. This is the best Blu-ray Masters Cinema put out this year in terms of technical quality, I think. It's staggering to watch this film on Blu-ray. <laughs> it's still an absolute chore to get through. I I just cannot... I, I hate it. I can't do that. I, just, I, I can't stand it. And it was, I, I was sat there thinking oh please end please 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 end and oh i i just i i hang my head in shame <laughs> that i can say that about this film that i should really love it but i'm sorry i just don't think me and it intolerance is like going out with someone and then just realizing after the second day it's not going to happen yeah. and then going out on another one <laughs> and another one you just you're just torturing yourself <laughs> waiting for the inevitable and that's what it's like for me but that being said i, I you know it's still a fan. It's an incredible Blu-ray. Mm. It's jaw-dropping, and it's a jaw-dropping film at times. It's just it does not connect with me in any way, shape, or form. Sorry, I could definitely find myself um, being impressed by certain shots and certain staging, especially the one where it seems like the camera is coming down up from above and into the crowd. And I think it's uh, the one set in Babylon or something. Um, this, yeah, the, like it's feels like an early crane shot or something um but that was like very impressive such movement in the shot such staging um but the story i I, the four stories they don't intertwine together successfully it feels like i think i read that um one of the early reviews of this film from the 20s was or from uh, 17 or 19 whatever it said that it was afraid that um the woman in uh, in the Babylon era was going to get hit by a car uh, in the climax. It felt like everything was Maybe. just muddling together and there was no coherence. And he, I, I was definitely lost by just what I was about. It feels like the um, the story structures of the they don't they don't add up together. So it it doesn't feel like it has a unitary feel to it, a unitary progression. So it feels very hold and stop. Uh, for most of the movie, yeah, I um, it, yeah, it just gets it. It kind of collapses on itself, and by that time, I just I didn't know what was going on. I don't really know what's going on throughout it yeah. anyway. It's just baffling to me. 
it's, um, it's interesting listening to you two talk about it because my although it's been a long time since I've seen it, my two memories of it were that it was an absolute slog to get through it, uh, which I always kind of put down to my age rather than the film, but I've since kind of thought perhaps might just be the film. And the other thing was that the I remember being kind of impressed by some of the visuals, particularly the camera work. But, oh, but at the same time, have kind of felt ever since the more silent films I've watched, the less impressed my my kind of mm. memory is of it because I've seen things that were more impressive and some of them that occurred before that. Um, so they're, they're kind of my two two overriding memories of it, even though if they're a bit vague, but you kind of what you've said seems to um, kind of confirm those a little bit. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I, th- I think I, I can see that now because you go and watch Wings and uh, then watch this. And it's like, hmm, yeah, Wings is a technical achievement and what whatnot. But that's the thing about Intolerance. I mean, it is incredible. Those sets are amazing, you know, and the, the camera work. It's just the the film itself is just. I think I think the story itself. I think it's I think it's boring. I think that's its problem. I think that's his main problem. It, it isn't captivating at all. Mm. Not that I particularly enjoy his other film, Birth of a Nation, more. But I was more engaged with that film. At least uh, it was easier to follow. Um, I could understand, or I could. I could go along with the film to a much higher degree, uh, even though I vehemently disagree with its message. Um, it was much, it was a much more um, satisfying experience than watching Intolerance. Yeah, um, again, it's they're much the much this. I mean, I, I I can watch Birth Nation. Birth Nation is more coherent, I yeah. think. Um, definitely, it's it's more kind of straight ABC narrative. But I mean. Um, and again, yeah, I love I love how it looks, but I mean, I'm just so off. I just find it so off-putting the story that I, I kind of I have a bit of a disconnect from it. To be honest with you, the final film or the final um, release that we got was Les Misérables, um, a Blu-ray release. Um, and I'm wondering, off the top, um, was this a TV series or was it produced for? Like, it feels very. When I watched it today, uh, I watched it. Uh, I, previous uh like a year ago or something on hulu and what i noticed when i was watching the blu-ray was that it looked it feels so, it reminds me such as a theater setup or a theater lighting and tv lighting that i come to remember from like the 60s it's very very harsh lighting um that it, they use on the characters um, I didn't really notice that to be honest okay. with you. I didn't get that kind of asset. I, I, I was kind of surprised going back to it. How, um, I mean, I, I can I can only sort of say how much I, I, I do love this film um, completely, and I, I didn't I didn't kind of get okay. that. I, I, I was kind of I thought it was kind of quite dark and dirty and how it should be. Really, that was my kind of interpretation mm. of it. But um, the film itself, I I really really enjoyed the first and third part. Uh, the second part is a real slog for me to get through i think i I had real issues with that one uh just the marius story itself i think that is my least favorite aspect of this uh, story yeah i've always i found that in every version i've watched it you know um even the the musical version that came out last year um which was one of my favorite films of last year actually um I, i was completely mesmerized by it and i i kind of liked seeing it in this form as well without the musical Mm kind of aspects of it it's quite nice seeing it as a played for kind of straight as it were um but I, yeah i i was mesmerized i mean it has its kind of yeah it lags a little bit in that stage but i was absolutely mesmerized by it again um it's just a story that absolutely gets me i 
not much in I'm not a boo-hooer in life in general but films certain films do kind of have me in floods and this is one way it just gets me every time for some reason that like, the last few moments of Les Mis uh, yeah really hit home and um, I definitely this is one of my favourite Blu-ray releases of the year um, certainly one of my favourite films favorite, I think it's my favorite, one of my favourite stories I think actually I think mm. like, that's how I feel about it as well and this, this, uh, this film does it complete justice for me um, it's a fantastic companion. You know, I'm glad we've got the musical as well yeah. and this one. So those were all the releases uh, from the year. So what I thought we could do now is just name our top three releases of the year. Wh- which ones would you want customers to purchase if they were to pick up three releases from 2014? Uh, and we'll start with you, Craig. Uh, yeah, my number three choice would be White Dog. Uh, my number two would be The Gang's All Here. And my number one would be Youth of a Beast. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> we'll have which I lists. can't help but feel yeah. is going to be a different list to other people, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tom, what about you? Um, number three, I'm going with Les Miserables. Um, number two, I'm going with Thief of Baghdad. And number one, I'm going with Wings. Okay. Uh, my number three will be Caligari. Um, my number two, uh, it was a toss-up between... Les Miserables and Faust, but I think I'll go with Faust, actually. And my first choice is Wings as well. Uh, definitely one of the best releases I've seen uh, in a long time. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, definitely. I would also say that whilst uh, whilst Wings wasn't in my top three, it, it probably would have been a very close close one. Uh, it's just an amazing release. And I, even though I picked those three... I do think the thing that Master Cinema do really well is silence, and I should, yeah. in a way, all three should be silenced, yeah. to be honest. I think eight yeah. of the uh, of the releases in the third and fourth quarter were silence, so that was really something. It's quite impressive uh, seeing how they are really going for it uh, with silence. Yeah, I, c- Definitely. I just think it's uh, hugely impressive, and it's, it's one reason why I'd be very, I'm very happy to support them even more because I think it's so so important and something that is getting getting missed sadly by a lot of other uh, studios distributors and so on. No, totally, I'm completely down with that, and I mean, you know, as as much as I am. Um... As, as much as I can't say I love Intolerance, I'm glad that it's got that release. I think it is an important, you know, it's an important film to be out there and to get, you know, to get that kind of loving treatment. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's very important that happens, and I'm glad they're doing it. And um, yeah, I mean, I thought overall this year, I, th- I thought it was a very strong year for Masters of Cinema in in retrospect. I think there's some brilliant films on there. And um, my only sort of thing is, I wish they'd kind of perhaps like for next year, perhaps you know, get more documentaries and some more animation coming into the collection. I think that's something perhaps where it's a little bit underrepresented. But on the whole, I think they've got the mix, you know, pretty damn right this year. Okay, so wrapping things up, those were our top three. Um, Craig, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, wrap up episode. My pleasure. And where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me pretty much every day at filmdivider.com and uh, you can follow me on Twitter. You can follow Film Divider on Twitter at Film Divider and you can follow me at C Skinner. And Tom? Uh, you can find me at 24framescast.blogspot.com. Find me on Twitter at 24framescast. And of course, you can find me on Facebook. My picture is a picture of people, two people dancing in a and a half. <laughs> and you can find us on MOC cast.blogspot.com where you can also find links to our Twitter page and our Facebook and uh, I'm on Twitter at THJOA and you can also find us on CriterionCast.com where we have been releasing our episodes recently 
So um, thank you both for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you, thank you for listening. And until next year, bye. Thank you.